The Sea Report and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated. From 99 cents per month to 4.99 per month to 9.99 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for the Sea Report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm slash the sea report. And thanks, y'all. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Good morning, America. How are you guys doing on this fair morning here on the first day of March 2022? I hope everyone is doing well today. And you guys are probably wondering what the heck is Mr. C doing on this early in the morning and where is his suit and tie? Well, for those of you joining us on the podcast, I'm usually wearing a suit and tie on this show. Uh, But yeah, we are doing a special screening this morning, ladies and gentlemen. I tell you what, I just got back from casting my votes. I haven't even gotten to bite into my taco yet. We got a lot of stuff going on. And uh, well, it's a good thing I had to go vote this morning because I may not have woken up on time. Uh, But we do have some special events going on this morning. Let me see real quick. Make sure we're running it live on all channels here. Before we get into exactly what today's show is going to be all about. Now, I don't know exactly how long we're going to be here, guys. But what I can tell you is that we have the uh, Wisconsin election investigation hearing happening today. And in about T-minus four minutes, they're supposed to be going live. Now, this is, uh, this is a pretty big event, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that we have this uh, going on here. Uh, let me tell you guys, uh, this has to do with uh, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman. Now, you guys probably remember Michael Gableman uh, from uh, all of the shows we've done where we talk about Michael Gableman. For those of you who may not remember who Michael Gableman is, uh, allow me to entertain you with my favorite photo of Michael Gableman. Now, this guy has been an absolute bulldog. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I just found some more photos of the guy. You, you'll you remember him when you see, you remember him? You remember this man? The guys who like, gah. 
<laughs> he's like, God, how could you guys try and, uh, how could you guys try and do this? How could you steal things from America? I just found some more photos of Michael Gableman that I think I enjoy rather much. How about this one? <laughs> Go Michael Gableman. Okay. Now while I'm, while I'm poking fun at the good Michael Gableman, here's another one guys. Here's another one. Yeah. <laughs> Go Gableman. Okay, go Gableman. Now, a lot of people did not have faith in this man. All right. A lot of people were decrying him. They're like, ah, this is a shill. And you know, they have every right to, you know why? Because Robin Voss, the rhino speaker of the house, Robin Voss is the man who hired this guy, you know? So right away, I know when I first heard about Gableman, I had my biggest doubts about the man. Uh, he, he, is, uh, he is quoted as saying, I have no idea how elections run. I don't know how they work, all that stuff. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I decried the man too. I was hard on the man also. Uh, but as it turns out, it seems he's been a bulldog. He's been tenacious. He's been going through uh, an alternate route as opposed because apparently in Wisconsin, for some reason, they can't find the fraud. For some reason in Wisconsin, the ERIC system, the Elections Rigging Information Center, well, it's the uh, uh, Registration Center. For some reason with that, well, it seems that, uh, it seems that you know, them being able to turn on and turn off as many voters as they might need, where they have, what, like four or five million voters, they have like seven million people on their rolls. Yeah, that's ERIC for you guys. We got to get rid of it. You know, a lot of states, there's 31 states that use that same election rigging system, guys. So they couldn't find the fraud in Wisconsin, right? But Michael Gableman went through another route. He went, uh, he went through uh, investigating what was happening in the Wisconsin Five in regards or in respect to, uh, respect to the Zuckerbucks. And that was one of the routes that he took. And now if you guys were following the story with us as we have been, and then you know that Michael Gableman was also trying to subpoena the mayor of Gren, uh, Green, Green Bay and the, and the mayor of um, Madison. Okay, those two in particular because they allowed Michael Spitz Rubenstein of the National Vote for Home Institute or Vote at Home Institute to basically run their elections. Basically pushing aside their own city um, uh, statutes, pushing aside their own state laws and um, allowing an outsider to uh, to handle their elections for them, which is against against their own election laws. So we'll see if that's where this is going. We'll see exactly what Gableman found. Um, but uh, that's guys. That is why we are here today because this is this is a big one, right? This is this is supposed to show us a lot of the fraud that was going down. We don't know what Michael Gableman is going to share with us, guys. This will always be my favorite Gableman photo, by the way. This will always be my favorite Gableman photo. He's like, what the hell? All right, let me uh, go ahead and see if we got any live screens going on this right now. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it looks like we do. We have the, uh, okay, so let's go ahead and bring this on in for you guys so you can check out what's going on. I'll be here. I'll be in the chat room enjoying my tacos while we, uh, while we get this rolling, y'all. Okay, so let me go ahead and get this full screen. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll sit here and talk with you guys for a little bit until this thing gets going. Wisconsin Elections Commission. Now, they did a canvas. Ooh, ladies and gentlemen, that sounds exciting. Okay, so uh, we'll see as soon as they go live. I will uh, have that on the air for you guys. I'm going to exit full screen real quick. Let me see what these guys got going on. 
Okay, RSBN is also covering this, but they have all of their insignia all over the screen, so I'm not even going to waste my time with RSBN. Um, just a moment. Okay. All right. I think... Here we go. All right, guys. We got some movement. Hopefully this thing, uh, hopefully this thing plays through. Hopefully it plays through. We'll find out in just a moment. To the April there we go. election for Kiwani uh, Circuit Court judge. And I am signing that statement of canvas today. Mr. Rydecki, is there anything else I need to complete before we conclude this? No, I do not believe. Uh, Whoops. Station, uh, fulfills all of our responsibilities. Excellent. And thank you, everybody. This matter is concluded. Have a good day. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye. Don't even tell me it's already over. Nonprofit media network with a mission. Okay, I just need to make sure. Sorry, guys. I just need to make sure because that's already over. What the heck was that all about, right? Don't worry, guys. I got my eyes on two different uh, stitches here. Let me make sure sound is coming out as well. I know. Okay, I know you hear me in multiple. Okay, here we go. I think I got a better one. Let me refresh this. Yeah, I don't know. That seems like that was a rip. Um, that's the canvas it says here. And RSBN has a blank screen as well. Okay, they got the same screen I got. All right, guys, so we're going to go with this one. It says coming soon. Now, uh, okay, so let's, let's continue talking about the whole Gableman situation. Okay, so Gableman... As I said, he has been an absolute hound dog, ladies and gentlemen, working this from every angle. He's gotten a lot of pushback. You know, he has been, um, he, he's been, he's, like I said, he's been aggressive and tenacious. Now, he's had uh, the Wisconsin Elections Commission coming after him uh, and trying to, uh, trying to injunct him, I guess, for lack of a uh, better word. And uh, he's uh, had them try and stop him every bit. He, and, you know, and the funny thing about it is, like I said, Robin Voss, the rhino speaker of the house, is the one. He is the one who uh, he is the one who has um, uh, hired the man. OK, so there was a lot of a lack of confidence. Now, check this out, guys. So it says right here. Uh, let me uh, expand that screen for you. It says Wisconsin Elections Commission canvas of the 2022 spring primary. Um, March 1, the Wisconsin Elections Commission will hold a meeting for Commissioner Ann Jacobs. So that, that's a lie. Okay, so I don't, I mean, that's not what we're here for. Okay, so let me see what else is going on. Do they, uh, did they reboot this somehow? Okay, Assembly on Committee. Here we go. This is the one. All right. I think they're in motion now. So let's go ahead and uh, turn to these guys. All right, guys, enjoy the show. Here we go. From the Office of Special Counsel. Um, I want to remind people that uh, let's be respectful to make sure that we can hear everybody. Let's not have any yelling or shouting. If we can 
treat this as the authors have spent a good bit, good bit of time on this. Let's make sure that they're given the respect due for the time that they've put in on that. With that, um, Justice Gable, if you want to introduce who's here with you today, that would be great. Well, good morning, Chairman Branchen. I would be happy to introduce everybody who is here. I, Attorney Clint Lancaster, who has helped me so much. Uh, I think as, they want your microphone on right there, the little green button. Um, right in front of you, up the other one over there. You know, after 10 years at the court, you'd think I'd be used to pressing <laughs> the microphone. But... It's on? It's on. Okay. okay. It sure sounds like it's on. Okay, perfect. Listen, I really, I come here today, and my overwhelming sense of being here is one of gratitude. Now, that may sound odd, given the environment that we're in. But I want to just take, I think it's worthwhile taking just a minute to think about our fellow men and women in Ukraine right now. I am, I am overwhelmingly grateful that even though, you know, for example, Representative Spreitzer, you and I haven't always seen eye to eye on every issue, but here we are. We're able to talk about it. We're, we're able to talk about it. And in, in time, in meetings past, I, I think I've gotten a little more heated than the circumstances called for. And I regret that because this is important. And, and as I was walking through the hallway, through the, under the rotunda of this beautiful building, whose architect was the same man who designed the Capitol in, in Washington, D.C. I thought to myself, the reason, as I, as I thought every day for 10 years when I had the privilege of working in this building, I think the reason that the founders of this state made this building the way it is is try to try to call our attention to the fact that we are not about our personal interests, we are trying to work for our fellow citizens. And this building, I think, is a monument to the idea that all of us who are privileged to be in public service are called to be better, maybe better than ourselves than we ordinarily would be. And to try to set aside our personal differences, to try to set aside whatever animosity might be generated in the course of heated political and legal discussion. And to work for the people who sent us here and who pay for all of this and on whose support we depend for the temporary lease on whatever authority we might have. So with that being said, no, I, I do want to note too, I, I think it's important First of all, I know the report, uh, as the chairman just said, that the report uh, just came in a few minutes ago, and I regret that. But I do want to remind everyone on this committee that this meeting today is part of an ongoing discussion that will not end today. This will not end it. This is an important topic, and there's a lot of work to do. And I will be back. And we will continue the dialogue, hopefully civilly, but I can fight too. But we'll do our best, and we'll do our best for the people who we serve. 
I'd like to start out with an overview of the report that the Office of Special Counsel has submitted today. I obviously, none of you have had the chance to read it. We, we had a few uh, challenges getting it here. But I do want to provide you with an overview. And then I have learned in watching my share, and I, I suppose all of you, the members of this committee too, the normal way these committee hearings play out is that the individual who comes to talk comes and reads a prepared statement. And it goes on and on and on. And I thought to myself, I'd get tired of listening to me too. So what I did is I've asked my staff to prepare a PowerPoint presentation to illustrate many of the main points that are in our report as a consistent supplement to the important findings that we've made and equally important, the important work that's left to do. When I started this process, when I started this whole procedure, I had no other goal in mind than to find the truth. And while we don't have it entirely yet, we're getting there. And one of the important truths that has to be mentioned is recited in Chapter 1 of our report, and that is that the Center for Tech and Civic Life's $8,800,000 Zuckerberg Plan Grant with the cities of Milwaukee, Madison, Racine, Kenosha, and Green Bay facially violates the Wisconsin law prohibiting election bribery. Second, the motive for these grants was impermissible and partisan get-out-the-vote efforts. Third, Government oversight, that is my investigation, on behalf and in the place of the legislature, the people's representatives, government oversight has been obstructed by governmental and outside corporate collusion. Fourth, this collusion and entanglement also caused a host of questionable actions by the Zuckerberg Five. We did pay the power bill. This <laughs> The corporate legal defense to facilitate obstruction that's going on with the private groups that came in. David Becker was here not too long ago. David, I don't know which camera I can look you in the eye. And, and I, know, I know you've been making inquiries about me. And maybe I'll be making inquiries about you very soon, too. These legal defense funds and strategies facilitate obstruction, and may very well violate Wisconsin law. Six, Wisconsin election officials' widespread use of absentee ballot drop boxes violated Wisconsin law. Seven, the Wisconsin Elections Commission unlawfully directed clerks to violate rules which are in place to protect nursing home residents, which resulted in many of these nursing homes reporting a 100, and in fact, having a 100% return on their ballots and considering the registered voters. 100%, including many voters who are ineligible by reason of guardianship 
and their right to vote was removed by the court. And that's one of the illustrations of this PowerPoint. We've got several, many families bravely have come forward to cooperate with the investigation because their loved one, often in a very mentally incapacitated state, in some cases haven't voted in 10 years, somehow cast a ballot in the November 3rd, 2020 election. And I can stand up here and talk about it all day long, and you can read about it in the report, but I'll tell you, you have to have a heart of stone if you're not moved just a little bit when you watch these videotapes that we have. And we're going to see them in just a few minutes. You'll see what the WEC commissioners did with their illegal conduct. It's not just some hypothetical decision that's made a few blocks on East, away on East Washington. It's something that impacted and violated the rights of some of our most vulnerable citizens. Next, the WEC unlawfully encouraged evasion of ballot security measures related to indefinitely confined voters at the behest of outside corporations. Nine, as I mentioned, wards under guardianship orders and therefore legally prohibited from voting voted unimpeded by Wisconsin's elections officials as they are not recorded in the WISVOTE voter database, even though the circuit courts have this information and our election officials have a clear duty to make sure those who are ineligible to vote do not vote. Similarly, Non-citizens voted unimpeded by Wisconsin's elections officials as they are not recorded in the WISVOTE voter database, even though Wisconsin law requires citizenship to vote. Milwaukee, Madison, Racine, Kenosha, and Green Bay election officials may have violated the federal and Wisconsin equal protection clauses by not treating, by favoring some voters on the basis of race and other, other criteria over similarly situated voters in the same city. Many of you are probably interested, and so I will go now before we go to the PowerPoint, in our recommendations. Our recommendations are fairly predictable given what I have just outlined. And they include the elimination and dismantling of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The, the Wisconsin Elections Commission, unfortunately, at best, is hopefully incompetent, hopelessly incompetent. And we, we have a predecessor to it, the Government Accountability Board, which was dismantled by the legislature in 2015, at the end of the year in 2015, because of the demonstrated partisan conduct of its then head, Kevin Kennedy, who is still very much influential in Wisconsin elections administration process. And we'll get to that as we go on, too. And so the mechanisms and all of the infrastructure of the disgraced and partisan government accountability board remained intact, including Kevin Kennedy's former employee, Megan Wolf. Megan Wolf, who is now the administrator of WEC, and has continued all of Mr. Kennedy's 
policies. They've got a they've got a biannual appropriation of over ten million dollars. That money, I want to I want to remind all of a sudden the people who are so vigilant about government money. My investigation has been allocated about six hundred thousand, something like that, of which we have about three hundred thousand remaining. Weck has ten million. Zuckerberg gave over ten million to the state. George Soros gave millions of dollars to start Eric, which we will get to. And uh, by the way, Megan Wolf is the president of Eric now. And Kevin Kennedy serves on the board of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, which Mark Zuckerberg gave $69.2 million to fund. And now that entity, using the Zuckerberg money, came six weeks ago to Wisconsin to provide an election defense fund to any election official who may be under investigation for illegal or otherwise improper conduct. So in other words, Zuckerberg-funded organizations have come to Wisconsin to offer protection to those who took Zuckerberg money and followed the Zuckerberg plan. Are you going to... Are you going to... They're the people, too, Ms. Subek, Representative. They're the people, too. Okay, I'll start over. I've lost my train of thought. So, in other words, entities that are funded by Mark Zuckerberg have come to Wisconsin and an adoring media in our paper's largest city calls it a a nonpartisan effort when in fact it is the same partisans. David Becker once again with his Zuckerberg money. And now he's come to offer the legal protection to anyone who's committed crimes or maybe a person of interest who could help us uncover activities that were improper. Now, so many people under this dome, claim to be for transparency. I've heard so many times, and so often disingenuously, sunshine is the best disinfectant. But somehow, that rule does not apply when it comes to the very information concerning who is an eligible voter in this state. I believe this committee itself was told not too long ago that if it wanted that information, it had to come up with $12,500. Well, I've subpoenaed over a year's worth of that information. If the government, if the assembly had to pay that, that would be about four and a quarter million dollars for that information, because it's $12,500 per day. That information has already been paid for by the taxpayers. It ought to be up on the internet. There ought to be one accurate list of who the eligible voters are. Not Eric has, Eric's, Eric was sold to this state as a means by which to keep our voter rolls accurate. But they have done the opposite and they have operated in darkness and behind paywalls. And Eric has dictated the terms of the public access to the public information, has dictated it to WEC 
And Weck has acted like an employee or servant of Eric as opposed to the manager or customer. And that has to stop. You see, because so much of the suspicion in this case is generated by the unknowing, the lack of knowledge about who's an eligible voter and who's not. And if people want to find out, they somehow have to... Private groups found out during the 2020 presidential election. They came up with millions of dollars to pay for it. I recommend making that information accurate and making it public so that anyone who's interested, whether it's a candidate or a political party or a citizen, interested citizen, can look for him or herself. I believe that only works, though, with the second step, which is to make public and stop charging for the information about who voted. Put up the same information that's available for sale at WEC and that the taxpayers have already paid for, so that anyone who is interested can look and compare the two lists. Who is eligible to vote? Who voted? I believe, I really do believe, even though we're not done with this investigation, I really do believe 90% of the questions that are outstanding, as much as those things can be quantified in a percentage basis, would be eliminated if people had that knowledge for themselves or the ability to look it up. That's not too much to ask. There are others about standardization, but those are, the, those are the big ones. Ultimately, we do note in Appendix 2 that the information, information we've gathered, by the way, which I note in the report, we have gathered, despite the obstruction of everyone at WEC aided and abetted by Josh Call, the current Attorney General, and by the current Governor, Tony Evers, who told all the clerks to lawyer up. Not one person that we have subpoenaed for substantive information has come forward to talk with us. Rather, they have all retained law firms, expensive out-of-state law firms. And we are currently, my office, my office of the grand total, funded with the grand total of, what was it, six, seven, yeah, like 670,000. We're now in the midst of nine different lawsuits, all to try to find the answers that the people ought to have as a matter of course. So, of course, we're not done. With that teed up, at this point, I believe the legislature ought to take a very hard look at the option of decertification of the 2020 Wisconsin presidential election. That, that would Madam not Chair, automatically Madam lead. Chair, yes. That would that not is the lead. the third time that the crowd. I, I and asked, I would ask that if it happens again, you clear the room because this is not allowed in any committee so I've ever been to, All right, I, I and I would appreciate. I appreciate it, and I think that um, we are trying to keep it to a limit, so uh, I appreciate your concern, and we will go forward. I'm sorry, two minutes, what? No, you have as much time as oh, you need. Oh, I thought you said. We're just going to ask the room, please, regardless of your thoughts, to keep your clapping, to keep your yelling to a minimum. I think we're doing a 
an okay job. I'm just going to remind him of that. I'll just note that no government official. I will answer if I will be more than glad to have that conversation if I think it gets to that point. But I'm going to let <laughs> forgive us for the interruption. No, no, it's my pleasure because I don't have a dog in this fight. I just want the truth. And I want our elections to be honest. And I want all of my fellow citizens to not only know and believe that the elections are honest and fair, fairly run, but I want all of the elections to have the yeah, 676,000, and we're getting hit from out-of-state law firms and the unlimited money of, of Zuckerberg and all the others uh, to come and go before the courts rather than just talk with us. We have to have we have to have an election system in Wisconsin that is not only honest in fact but also in appearance if our democracy is to survive. Now, on that note about the lack of confidence in our elections, this is as good a time as any to start the slideshow. We have, uh, we're going to start before we get to uh, the issue of voter lack of confidence, which I think is pretty common, under, well understood anyway. I mentioned earlier the, the illegal conduct as outlined by Sheriff Schmeling in Racine County in regard to five out of the six WEC commissioners knowingly, deliberately, intentionally and publicly violating the law when it comes to protecting our elderly in continuing care facilities. That's the part that I said, well, I can talk about that all I want, but unless we've got something a little more powerful than, than my words. And I'd ask, I'd want you to meet, I'd ask you to be introduced to Walt Jankowski. All of these people have signed all of the requisite releases and have bravely come forward, by the way. Walt Jankowski's son, Walter, couldn't find his father's voting records. He looked on the MyVote website and discovered that his father had requested a mail-in ballot. Mr. Jankowski voted and returned it all before Election Day. The Wanakee clerk uh, told the son that since no one in nursing homes has an ID, they aren't required to provide ID. All they have to do is give consent. His son, the son asked how his dad gave consent since he doesn't speak or write. And the clerk said that pointing isn't acceptable or an eye wink would be okay as well. I want you to meet Mr. Jankowski yourself. Okay, I'm Wally Jankowski. I'm 62. It's my dad, Walt Jankowski, exact same name. The second, he is 84, born in 1937. <laughs> And do, do you have the power of attorney? Or, or yeah. You do. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm a guardian. You're a guardian? Yeah. Have you been making the decisions for a while then? Yes. Okay, healthcare and financial? Since I've been 17. Since you've been 17, so it's been a long time. Yeah. How long has uh, your father been institutionalized? He's been here since 1976, 70, 
75, 76, somewhere in there. And with respect to the cognitive decline, how did that get going? Uh, Dad had a brain surgery in uh, Canada back in the early 70s, and it didn't go very well, and he's been basically institutionalized ever since. And you've been his guardian since you were 17? Yep, as soon as I turned 17, my mother thought I could take on a little more responsibility. Right, and so with respect to... um, the voting, were you surprised that your father voted in 2020? I was. I uh, Actually, after uh, I looked on the I Vote Wisconsin thing, I looked and I, I'm like, oh, this can't be true. He requested a absentee ballot, and then he filled it out himself. And the only record showed of any voting for him was in that election, of course, since uh, he's been in these institutions. Which election was that? What? Which election? November 2020? Yes, last November's presidential election. And then there was a uh, February 21. So these, the whole purpose of these illustrations are to illustrate the real world and real person consequences of the decisions that are made, in this case, by five out of the six commissioners on the Wisconsin Elections Commission. These were not academic exercises. These were real world and had real world consequences and left a trail of victims. We've only been able, we've we've been able to interview a number of people, but we got 92,000 residents in continuing care facilities in Wisconsin and in the Zuckerberg five cities. We've been able to look at the, the numbers. In the Zuckerberg five cities, in all of those counties, those nursing homes reported a voting rate of 100%, anywhere in between 95% and 100%. These are the people who voted as a result of Wex, of the commissioner's illegal conduct. Please meet Sandra Klitsky. The video will speak for itself. You don't need my introduction. The Outagamie County Circuit Court Judge, Vincent R. Biskupic, established the guardianship? Correct, correct. And, and, uh, and uh, so Sandra Klitsky, uh, is the ward and you're the guardian. Correct. And uh, and Sandra, you knew about that, and that that was what you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and uh, you're the only uh, child, right, Lisa? I am the only child. That's yeah. right. And, and and included in the February 21, 2020 order was a restriction on voting. Is that correct? That is correct. Right. And so that's what we're talking about because uh, since the order, uh, she's uh, Sandy. Uh, Klitsky has been voting, right? Yes, she has. And that, that caused you some concern? Yes, it did. Let's see, I'm going to ask you some questions about elections, and this should take just about five minutes. If you don't understand something I say or ask, please tell These questions that Attorney Cardall uh, from the Thomas More Society, who's done very substantial and very wonderful work on behalf of the people of this state, these questions he's about to ask, and you'll see asked of the other residents, these are the questions that are put out by the elections uh, boards to help determine whether someone has the acuity uh, to be able to make a knowing choice for voting. These, he's not making these questions up. They're standardized questions to determine if a potential voter has the mental abil- capacity to vote. That's in the case that they're not under a court order. So anyway, please, yes. The questions may seem very simple to you, uh, but don't worry about that. We're just looking for some answers, straightforward answers. Do you have any questions before we begin? Are you okay with me asking the questions? Yeah. Okay. Let's start with, 
imagine that two candidates are running for governor of Wisconsin and that today is election day in Wisconsin. What will the people of Wisconsin do today to pick the next governor? Okay, uh, let's ask another question. I'm going to give you uh, a sheet of paper. And so this. I, I just want to extend my sincere thanks to all of these people who came forward. This, is, this isn't a wonderful event for these people, okay? And, and I just want to, I recognize courage when I see it, and I recognize when people want to do the right thing, even when it's tough, and I, I have no more respect for anyone than I have for the people in these videos. Please. This, this, this sheet of paper uh, describes a couple candidates. So imagine the following about the two candidates who are running for governor. Candidate A thinks the state should be doing more to provide health insurance to people who don't have it and should be spending more money on schools. He is willing to raise taxes to get the money to do these things. Candidate B says the government should not provide health insurance, but should make it easier for employers to offer it. He believes that the schools have enough money already, but need tighter controls to make sure they use it properly. He is against raising taxes. Based on what I just told you, which candidate do you think you're more likely to vote for, A or B? Can you speak up? You want to just tell them which one you think you would vote for, A or B? B. B. Okay. So, so since if you chose chose B, how is voting for B better than voting for A? I heard a lot about A. Okay. So you heard a lot about A, and okay. So. Um, you, you know, so that's all you know about candidate A. Yeah. So let's 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 move on. We have we have another question. If candidate A were elected governor in Wisconsin, how would that affect your life? Okay. Would you want to vote in the next election for governor of Wisconsin, or or are you okay with not voting? No, I don't care for him. Okay, you, you don't care for him. All right, well, that uh, concludes the, the question. Now, uh, thank you so much, Ms. Klitsky. You, you did a very good job in answering the questions. I'm, I'm so appreciative. And I guess with Lisa, does that kind of confirm your understanding of why the guardianship order restricted voting? Yes. And, and, and uh, were the responses to the questions... Uh, indicative of why the court restricted the voting right? Yes, I do believe so. Right. And Mrs. Clissy, we're so happy that you participated in, in this, and it, it's really important for our project, and we really uh, appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Before I introduce you to Ms. Merrill Barrett, I, I would just like to observe, Madam Chair, that the reason, one of the reasons uh, that I'm, I believe these videos are so important is because had the WEC commissioners followed the law, then special voting deputies who are trained 
and take an oath to follow all of the legally required ballot procedures would have had the opportunity to observe for themselves. One from each party is what the law requires. One from each party for the obvious reason to keep the other one honest. And those special voting deputies, instead of leaving it up to the tender mercies of whoever happened to get the ballot, those special voting deputies would have had both the lawful oath, the lawful obligation, and the legal training necessary to ensure that an ineligible voter does not vote. I'd like, to, I'd like you to meet Ms. Merrill Barrett, another voter in the presidential election in 2020. A memory problem, probably for 20 years, but it has progressed to the point now where she has a difficult time remembering names of people. She's, uh, she's not capable of making many decisions at all. Her health care decisions were turned over to me in 2009, I believe. So she's uh, basically not capable any longer of even remaining awake for more than a few minutes. Uh, she's being fed by hand and she's currently in hospice care. So the medications have been pretty well cut off. I've uh, signed off on most of the medications that she, she gets, but any, any of the memory enhancement medications were long ago discontinued. So Christy, I'm going to add. Well, just to state that she is 104 years old and a lot of people at that age aren't cognizant. It's taken a long time for us to rouse her awake to even get a word out but she hasn't really remembered us, <clears throat> Jack and me, for years, maybe five years. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, and so, are you surprised that she voted in February 2021? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so who discovered it? Uh, is it well, uh, <clears throat> Ron and I were uh, talking about the history of her voting, mm -hmm. and uh, Ron pulled up the uh, website that lists the, all of the information, myvote.com, I guess it is. And uh, uh, so the discovery that she voted in February was very recent, within the last couple of weeks. But I was surprised to hear that she voted in the last presidential election. That uh, kind of shocked me and, and, uh, and uh, put me in motion to find out what is going on here. Uh, did her cognitive decline um, get... I'd like to introduce you uh, to Mrs. Cecily Sherlock. To a point where you think she shouldn't be voting? Probably in 2010. And so, and then you were surprised uh, that she voted in the 2020 election? Absolutely. Um, I had absolutely no idea that she had been voting. Uh, much to my surprise, she had voted for the last, off and on for the last 10 years. I guess in my mind, I thought if you put your parent into a facility because they were incapacitated, they would not even be offered uh, the vote. Imagine that two candidates are running. This is Mrs. Uh, June Carmichael. For governor of Wisconsin, and today is election day in Wisconsin. 
what will the people of Wisconsin do to pick the next governor? You know? No. Okay. <laughs> well, when, when the election for governor is over, how will we decide who the winner is? You know? How will we decide who the winner of the election is? No, I don't know. Okay. Let me ask you about uh, an election between candidate A and candidate B. Here's a, here's a card. So here's some information. And so consider two candidates are running. Candidate A thinks the state should be doing more to provide health insurance to people who don't have it and should be sending more money on schools. He is willing to raise taxes to get the money to do these things. Candidate B says the government should not provide health insurance, which should make it easier for employers to offer it. He believes that the schools have enough money already but need tighter controls to make sure they use it properly. He is against raising taxes. Based on what I just told you, what's on the card, which candidate do you think you'd be more likely to vote for, A or B? Would you have a choice? No. If you did have a choice, uh, a, a or B, uh, would, why would you, how would you choose a candidate, A or B? You have a, would you have a method you'd choose one? But if you don't you know, have a method, you know, that's fine too. But yeah. how would you go about choosing a candidate in an election? Do you have a way you think about it? Yeah, probably. Okay. Would you, uh, if, if candidate A were elected governor, not candidate B in your state, how would that affect your life? Do you think it would affect your life? Or how would it affect your life? No, I don't think so. Uh, okay, the last question, then we're done. Uh, would you want to vote in the next election for governor of your state? If yes, why? If not, why not? Would you like to vote in the next election? Or? Probably. Okay. And, um, and so... Do you recall, have you voted in past elections? Well, do you remember the last time you voted? I don't know. I think I did. I'm not sure. Do you remember who you voted for? No. Okay. So is it, uh, uh, do, you, do you know who the governor is now? Mm. No, I don't think so. I don't remember? No. Who's the governor? <coughs> Uh, Governor Tony Evers. Uh, do you know who the president is? President? Yeah. Of this country or? Yeah, president of the country. No, I don't remember. That's on Look, uh, Ms. Carmichael, thank you so much. But that was the questions, and you did very well. Hey, thank you. The, uh, the first of our final three uh, interviewees is Mrs. Lila. Alberts. Vote. They make you vote here? And, and, and uh, so how do they make you vote? Because I didn't want to vote and they told me I had to. Uh, my name is Eric. And this is Mrs. Carol Forrest uh, speaking about her deceased mother. Colonel, I'm an attorney. Uh, it's December 17th. Uh, we're in Washington County and I'm interviewing Jody Schulteis. Sure. Sure. So my mom just recently passed away. She was to hear that. yeah, she was eighty eight years old and was living in assisted living um, because she had uh, dementia, 
And so she had what was called mixed dementia, Alzheimer's and um, vascular dementia. So um, she was at Ellen's home in uh, Germantown, which is in Washington County. She had been there for about two and a half years before she passed. Well, I thought I'm going to look up and see if my mom voted because it was during COVID. And I, of course, wasn't able to even go and see her. I could do Zooms or I could say hi to her through the window, but I couldn't see her. So I didn't really give a thought to the fact that somehow she could vote. So I looked it up on the MyGov vote or MyVote.gov. MyVote, my uh, part of the Wisconsin Election Commission site. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. And put in the information about her. And lo and behold, um, she voted in the 2020 election. Um, she did vote before that too, but I was most interested in the 2020 election. She voted in February. She voted in April in the primary. And she voted on November 3rd, 2020. And uh, by that point, uh, she had been diagnosed with the uh, the dementia, the, right. the multiple dementias, mixed dementia, and you, you ended up getting some opinions of doctors, right? Could you describe what you did? Yes. So um, she saw a neurologist, and he's the one who diagnosed her with MRIs and such with the mixed dementia. So he signed off on a form that would, um, it was about her competence, and so uh, the, and then her primary care signed off as well, and it, this this form deemed her incompetent. Okay, so that's your mother. Yes. What's her name? Carol Forrest. Hey, Carol Forrest. And, yes. and you're the uh, durable power of attorney because uh, at this point you could make health care decisions for her? Correct. And what were the names of the two doctors? Uh, Dr. Krismer and Dr. Heder. And basically when the doctor signed off on this document, it means that for all healthcare decisions, now you're making the call. Correct. Right. And did, was that document honored by the assisted living facility? Yes. And so if there was a healthcare decision, you were involved? Correct. Okay. So, so, so when was that signed? Uh, that was signed on November 5th and, I mean, September 5th and 6th of 2018. Oh, 2018. That's, right. That's uh, two years before the November 2020 election. Right. Uh, Before we see our, our final interview, obviously I misspoke. I apologize to Ms. Schultes. And I'd now like to introduce you to uh, Mrs. Marie Hayden. I'm good, Eric. All right. Well, why don't we just uh, get started. Uh, um, uh, Gary, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and introduce your mom? Uh, I'm Gary Hyden. This is my mother, Marie Hyden. I'm her oldest boy. Now, how, many one of, how many children? Uh, five. Right. Well, let's see. Candy, Di, me, Rich, and Jeff. And uh, and so uh, how, how long has uh, Ms. Hyden uh, lived here at the facility? About, I think, 2018, 2017. What's me? I can't. I'm trying to I think, think of what I got. 2017. She had a, after you had the stroke, and you were over on the assisted living side of this facility. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they moved you over to this side. What year was that about? Uh, that was in... 2019. Okay. And was there some uh, cognitive decline associated with that? Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and yeah, they were 
Remember, they used to come in and ask you all kinds of memory tests. And oh, yeah. Vaguely. <laughs> right. right. And so, the um, and how often, uh, Gary, do you uh, visit, do you think? Uh, and fa- or in family members, too? We used to come every single week when she was on the assisted living. Then when COVID happened, we couldn't get in at all, so we visited outside windows. And then mm-hmm. uh, they limited the number of visits that we could come. And there's four, four or five of us wanted to visit, so we'd have to take turns. So it was maybe yeah. maybe once a month or yeah. once every month and a half. And, and, and you and the family then, uh, uh, you know, uh, supported uh, 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 your mother, and you you ended up coming you know, to your own assessments regarding her cognitive decline. It's not really based on the medical records; it's what what you know, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is that a yes? I'm uh-uh. oh, sorry, is that a yes? Yes. Okay, yes. good. All right, well, um, Sidon, we're going to ask you a, a, a couple questions then about mm-hmm. voting. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you voted in 2020, which wasn't that long ago, and that would have been after the movement over here to the memory care unit as, oh, or, or over the side? I think just before. I well, think I think it was just before the move here. Okay. They had put up, they had posted something on the wall saying that the election was coming up and that uh, they were, I believe they were going to be, I don't know if they said handing out ballots or helping people with ballots. Mm-hmm. I don't remember and, But then. Something I didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we weren't here when they did it, but okay. then when we came back and we asked my mom and she said, I don't even know if you knew that you had voted at the time. I don't remember what I you think, said. Yeah. But, right. I, I did. but evidently. I think I did. And that's why you contacted us, because you were concerned about her voting yeah. when uh, you, uh, she wasn't capable of voting. Yeah. yeah. But let's ask you some questions then. This will only take a few minutes. I'm in a rush. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got all the time in the world. Okay. All right. Well, so this is called the Category Assessment Tool for Voting. Mm-hmm. So let's just start with the first one. So I'm going to really do this slowly. I'm going to ask you some questions about elections. This should take about five minutes. If you don't understand something I say or ask, you just tell me that, mm-hmm. and I'll repeat it. Some of the questions may seem very simple to you, but don't worry about that. We're just looking for answers. Uh, do you have any questions before we begin? No. Okay. I haven't the biggest idea what you're going to ask. Okay, here we go. So imagine imagine that two candidates are running for governor of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and today is election day in Wisconsin. Okay, got it? What will the people of Wisconsin do today to pick the next governor? Well, they would vote. Exactly. Good. Okay, That so that's good. And the second one, when the election for governor is over, how be decided who the winner is. One of the most votes? Exactly. Okay, then here's the third question. And here I got a uh, handout for you. There you go. There you go. Okay, so this she, she cannot see. Oh, okay. I'll, okay. I, I know there's printing there. Okay, but, but I'll read it to you slowly then. Yeah, I can. Okay. So, okay, so in that election, there are two candidates running for office. So candidate A Mm -hmm. thinks the state should be doing more to provide health insurance to people who don't have it. 
and should be spending more money on schools. He is willing to raise taxes to get the money to do those things. Candidate B says the government should not provide health insurance, but should make it easier for employers to offer it. He believes the schools have enough money already, but need tighter controls to make sure they use it properly. Candidate B is against raising taxes. Do you prefer candidate A or candidate B? What do you think? Well, I think they shouldn't have, I suppose, raised taxes <laughs> as much as you don't like to. It, it's hard to take it out of your pocketbook. Uh, I'm going. Help me. <laughs> well, would it be candidate A or candidate B, do you think? Um, Okay. I can read it again. Yes, candidate please. A thinks the state should be doing more to provide health insurance to people who don't have it and should be spending more money on schools. He is willing to raise taxes to get the money to do these things. Candidate B says the government should not provide health insurance but should make it easier for employers to offer it. He believes the schools have enough money already but need tighter controls to make sure they use it properly. He is against raising taxes. Candidate A or candidate B? Oh gosh, how do you know if you're doing the right thing? Uh, I would say people don't want the taxes raised, I'm sure. I have a short memory right now. <laughs> no, that's all right. Now, if, if let's say you like one candidate better than the other. Mm -hmm. Why would you vote for that candidate? If you liked A or B, uh, well, whichever provided you with the most or did the most good for you. But let's say that you know candidate A uh, was your choice. Mm -hmm. How would that affect your life if candidate A, that's the one that uh, you know wants to spend more money in schools and is willing to raise taxes to get the money to do these things, including health insurance? If you're supporting candidate A, how would that affect your life? It would be a little bit difficult, I would say. Sure. So... You'd put a hole in your pocket. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, so going back over, you, so candidate A was for raising taxes, candidate B was against raising taxes. Uh, do you find it hard to choose between A and B because they have I, different positions? Well, I suppose, but no, I would vote... Uh, I would say if you have to raise them, well, people aren't going to like it. You or can't afford it. <laughs> would it be hard for you to make a decision, do you think? I don't know. Uh, one last question then, and I promise you it would be less than five minutes, right? <laughs> so, so one last. Oh, I'm in a rush. That's funny. Oh, what, help what, me. So, so what, no, you're doing. Oh. A, you're doing a good job. Well, you know my life for a while. I do. So, yeah. I do. Okay. So this is a question: Would you want to vote in the next election for governor of Wisconsin? Okay, and uh, it, so why? 
so I know what's going on. Sure. And, and so, uh, you know, say, and I'm so appreciative that well, that's the end of the interview. And you did such a wonderful job. Thank you for participating in the interview. And it's very helpful for our project. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Do you have anything else you want to say about? Uh... No. Okay. Thank you. I can't. I'll probably think. <laughs> this would be going on all day, you know, right now. As soon as we're gone, you're going to have all kinds of answers, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't think, you know, wasting your money, spending it for everything that comes along. If, it, if it's not going to do you any good, and or if you can't afford it. Right. Well, th well, thank you again. Thanks, Gary. Thank you so much. That's the end of the interview. Madam Chair, I thank you for your indulgence of allowing approximately 25 minutes for that presentation. Okay. Wally Jankowski. I, I know it seems like it got a little long for uh, th at least three members of your committee uh, on their phones and computers and the like. But I tell you what, each of those eight people and each of those eight families, they are but representative of the approximately 92,000 residents of continuing care facilities we have in this state. And I don't mind taking a few minutes, I don't mind one minute, because I know how upset and disappointed I would be, and I suspect everyone in this room would be, if they found their parent or loved one had been taken advantage of, all because WEC intentionally, the five out of six commissioners intentionally and knowingly violated the law and allowed, not just did away with the special voting deputies, but the, the statutes of Wisconsin specifically prohibit employees of nursing homes from, work, from presenting ballots to residents, but that was done in virtually every case. Now, I'd like to turn to a little larger question. Some of it has already been answered. Why many Wisconsin voters still doubt the 2020 election results. At the bottom, the most fundamental uh, the most, the elections should be transparent, the most fundamental, there's a typo, but it should be, the most fundamental concept of elections should, is that elections should be transparent, inclusive, and accountable. I didn't pick those words out of the air. Those are the words that the United States government, through its U.S. aid department, that's what we preach to developing countries around the world as to how their elections ought to be administered transparent, inclusive, and accountable. This gives a little bit of a background. I think uh, there was a poll, there was a nationwide poll done not too long ago. Only 20% of the public says that it's very confident in the country's elections. That's January of this year. It's one thing I guess Republicans and Democrats can agree on, right? Many, many polls indicate that our fellow citizens have significant doubt. Why do they have that doubt? Not just because of the violation of the trust of the people who put their loved ones, placed their loved ones into nursing homes and continuing care facilities. We had the specter of private, dark, money, unaccountable to anyone, coming in 
and taking an active role in the actual administrative process of our public elections, something that is unprecedented, as far as I know, in the history of this state. This headline illustrates how private money from Facebook CEO saved the 2020 election. I, I don't think the author of that uh, headline doubted for a minute that it had an effect on the outcome of the election. Mark Zuckerberg bought the 2020 election for Biden with staggering funding, new analyses suggest. How Zuckerberg helped Dem sway the 2020 election, just another example. Recent poll, 56% of all United States citizens believe Joe Biden's victory was influenced by cheating. You bet he came to town with money. Mr. Zuckerberg came with about $330 million, a little more, for CTCL, the Center for Tech and Civic Life. And we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that in a few minutes. But CTCL is a Chicago corporation, started, funded, they, their previous budgets have been a little over a million a year. Mr. Zuckerberg bumped that up considerably. They suddenly had $330 million to spread around. And CTCL was founded and is in fact run by former uh, employees and political operatives of pre former President Obama. CTCL came to Wisconsin and they called it a grant. They called it a grant. But they did not put applications out to everyone in this state. Unlike the practice that WEC itself followed when WEC was distributing federal CARES Act money, CTCL picked their own people. To call them grants, I think, is, is a little disingenuous because grants, if I grant you something, I give it to you. These were not gifts. These were contracts obligating the five cities to follow the directions of the CTCL funded by Mark Zuckerberg. So the cities did not become the owners of that money. I believe to a large extent they became the employees or the agents of CTCL funded by Mr. Zuckerberg. There was no transparency or public input when the Zuckerberg five mayors and the clerks applied and received the grants. The five, as we've talked about in previous meetings, the five uh, largest recipients were the five largest Democratic-controlled cities in the state. As I mentioned, this is in contrast to the, the policy and practices of WEC, where WEC uh, made the CARES Act subgrants. They became subgrants because the, the feds granted the money to WEC, and WEC was to distribute in subgrants. And they put out memoranda to all Wisconsin jurisdictions. Everybody. Everybody was invited to apply for the CARES Act money. The stated purpose of the CTCL grant was COVID safety. That was the stated purpose. But we see, as far as we know, less than 1% of the money was ultimately spent on protective uh, materials for COVID. So, so 
I mentioned an employment or an agency relationship between CTCL and the five cities. So what did, what did CTCL, what were they able to get for their money? They were able to get access to voter data information more to the point. They were able to get access to the information along very clear demographic lines and, and especially targeting African-Americans. And they kept track of which people of color had requested absentee ballots and which had returned them. And they got that information. They didn't have to pay. We have no records of them paying $12,500 per day. We, in fact, have the opposite. We have records of the CTCL operatives and their so-called partners, who were other private interest groups, getting access to information that would cost anyone in this room $12,500 a day. They were getting it. They were getting it every day on a no-cost basis, when nobody else could get it, that information fresh. Why is that important? Why is that? It was important for a get-out-the-vote. It was important for a get-out-the-vote effort. We've got a lot of polls, Tiana. We've got a lot of polls uh, showing distrust, so we'll skip over them. Uh, the young the young woman on the right is Tiana Epps Johnson, the director of Center for Tech and Civic Life. Approximately a month after she left her Obama program fellowship, she was awarding grants to the five largest cities in our state. The whole her whole purpose was to get out the vote. There's no record of any kind of medical personnel or scientific staff being part of CTCL. You know people who might be able to advise about COVID safety, a get-out-the-vote get operation. She interned at the Young Democrats of America, and from 2010 to 2015, she was the director of election administration for an entity called the New Organizing Institute, which, according to Capital Research Center, had one job, and that was to elect Democrats. We get to a few weeks later, after she leaves her Obama fellowship, this is when she begins negotiations with the five states, the five cities. Increase voter turnout for minorities and Democrats. Please go ahead. A lot of information publicly available talking about her partisan leanings. We, we don't need to go over that. We'll make it available, Madam Chair, to the committee. But I want to get to what this was really all about. We'll go to Whitney May. Whitney May, the CTCL Director of Government Services. CTCL coming to administer grants supposedly for COVID safety, when in fact uh, she is another Democrat operative, and she is uh, posting many social media posts favorable to Democrats, none favorable to Republicans. She obviously, as you can see by some of the things she chose to tweet, uh, disparaging the former president. I really want to get, these are all things showing the partisanship of the actors here. And I want to get to David Plouffe. 
because that's really what the heart of all of this is. David Plouffe was one of the two political operatives who helped bring a young politician named Barack Obama up from the city of Chicago to the presidency. He was Barack Obama's campaign director. He wrote the book in 2020. I brought a copy with me last time I was here, Citizen's Guide to Beating uh, Donald Trump. It really, in his, in his book, he really gets to the heart of what the CTCL grants were all about. Again, showing in the city uh, of Racine, Vicki Selko, uh, a Democrat operative who took it upon herself to lead the efforts to get the money from CTCL and distribute it to the five Zuckerberg cities. How do all these things come together? Mark Zuckerberg and his wife donate approximately, ultimately, $400 million. It goes to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative hired David Plouffe to be their director of policy and advocacy. David Plouffe, in his book, talked about the fact that the reason that Hillary Clinton lost is because three cities failed to get out the vote. And those cities were Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee. And then he went on to note in a November 11, 2020 editorial to the New York Times that another reason that Hillary Clinton failed to win is that she did not focus on getting out the vote of the African-American communities, of the African-American citizens. And so who does the CTCL, who do the CTCL grants favor who do they target for their get-out-the-vote grants? Unsurprisingly, because David Plouffe is setting the table and setting the roadmap for the plan by helping to distribute $330 million to the Center for Tech and Civic Life with the former Obama fellowship, uh, Tiana Epps-Johnson, and SEER, Center for Election Innovation and Research, David Becker, who came here with his election official legal defense fund, telling everyone that Megan Wolf and Weck ran the best election in the history of the country and is a shining model for the world. Well, all these people who ran such a shining model of the world are sure shy when it comes to talking with the Office of Special Counsel about what they did and why they did it. The reason they don't want to come forward is because it's pretty apparent from this grid. We've got David Pluff, author of Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, in charge of distributing the Zuckerberg hundreds of millions of dollars to five cities, to the cities across the country, hand-selecting where they're going to go. No one applied for it. The cities were approached. And then we have the $8.8 million Zuckerberg five grants to the five cities in Wisconsin. And then parallel, so on the, on the back end, when questions are being asked, there's also Zuckerberg money available to pay for the defense and the obstruction and the cover-up of the officials who participated in this partisan scheme. David Plouffe told us 
on November 11, 2020, I'm sorry, November 11, 2016, in the editorial that he wrote and submitted and published in the New York Times, that in order to win the next election, the Democrats were going to have to go to Milwaukee and turn out the African-American vote. And that's what this money was for, and that's the heart of this partisan effort. And you will see, this isn't Mike Gableman just speculating. These were in the contracts that the cities were bound to follow. These Democratic mayors in the Democratic cities entered into these agreements where they, who knows what they would have done with the money if left up to their own devices. I assume something pretty similar to what they did, but they weren't, it wasn't up to them. It was up to the paymasters at CTCL as directed by David Plouffe. And David Becker, interesting, interesting character. He took millions of dollars from George Soros, and then he took those millions of dollars and he started ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center, which the state of Wisconsin pays, according to what we've learned through this committee, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Our state pays to ERIC and David Becker. And you remember Kevin Kennedy, the partisan and disgraced former head of the former Government Accountability Board. Well, Mr. Kennedy, I told you, is still very much involved in Wisconsin. He sits on the five-man, and yes, they're all men, the five-man board of directors of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, along with David Becker. David Becker is also a board member of ERIC, along with President Megan Wolf, the administrator of our State Elections Commission. David Becker has been a busy, busy, active man in Wisconsin. He was a former lawyer at the Department of Justice. After he left justice, uh, he went to the Pew uh, Charitable Trust, in 2012, with uh, seed money from George Soros, he founds ERIC. Megan Wolf becomes the chair or president of ERIC's board. Very much interested in all of the CTCL grants. Yeah, I, I feel very comfortable making this statement. And if I'm wrong, I invite any of the people who I've reached out to to talk about this, including Megan Wolf, uh, to come and tell me that I'm wrong. Because as I stand here today, based upon all of the available information, the stated purpose of the Zuckerberg grants as washed through Center for Tech and Civic Life, that is COVID safety, was a mere pretext for a partisan get out the vote campaign. I already contrasted how Megan Wolf sent, unlike, unlike CTCL, when Ms. Wolf had federal money to distribute it, she sends, it, she sends the information to all 1,822 uh, Wisconsin uh, clerks, and they come up with a formula. They come up with a formula, Megan, Ms. Wolf did. She came up with a formula for distributing the money based on the number of residents per jurisdiction, and everyone was treated equally across the state of Wisconsin. She didn't just pick out five cities 
and then award some subjective amount of money and then tell them what to do with it. She made it available to everyone. You know, like a legitimate grant maker does. And the other reason we know it's a pretext, nobody needed, nobody, there's no record in front of us that any of the five cities needed any kind of protective equipment or money from CTCL to buy it. Our Wisconsin cities were doing just fine, thanks to the federal government and the state of Wisconsin, in providing money to our clerks so that we could see to the safety of our own citizens. There's no showing in any of the information that I've reviewed, or we've reviewed, to indicate that any of this money from CTCL was necessary for anything related to its stated purpose of COVID safety. But then the contract terms were written further, and the contract terms, the directives from CTCL, were to get out the vote, mainly among people of color and African Americans, just like David Pluff told them to do. Next, please. This is just the letter that Ms. Wolf sent out to all the jurisdictions, and she's uh, indicating the formula that she's going to follow for its distribution. So how much, how much of the $8.8 million went to uh, get out the vote? About $2.57 million. The, the agreement... The agreement, as we detail in the report, was called the Wisconsin Safe Voter Plan. The Wisconsin Safe Voter Plan is quite an odd name for an agreement whose subject matter had nothing to do with COVID safety and everything to do, literally, by its own terms, with get out the vote, follow David Pluff's. It doesn't literally say follow David Pluff's plan, but that's what they did. I do believe the CTCL money was for implementing the Pluff strategy. David Pluff, in his book, in 2020, those states, including Wisconsin, will be political war zones. Add that to the 20 states plus the District of Columbia that Clinton did collect, and our nominee wins 272 electoral votes. The contest for the presidency in 2020 may come down to block-by-block street fights in Detroit, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee. Philadelphia received $10 million from CTCL. Detroit, $3.5 million, but other money, I think, from Sear uh, and Milwaukee, $2.2 million. Quite a coincidence how he predicted COVID back then. CTCL money was for implementing the Pluff strategy. He writes, he tells us back in, he wrote the book in the summer of 2019. It was published in 2020. Early voting is important. This contract between CTCL and the five cities all required a special emphasis on early voting among the Biden profile voters as described by David Pluff and Joe Biden. Early voting is important. 
The campaign will work hard to nail down. He's talking about the generic Democrat campaign. He doesn't know who the nominee is going to be. The campaign will work uh, hard to nail down as many of these votes as possible, thus leaving more resources available for Election Day. Now remember, he tells us, registering won't get you to victory, people, if people don't vote, then vote. Much has rightly been written about the Democratic challenges the Democratic turnout faced in places like Detroit and Milwaukee in 2016. Yeah, he was one of the writers about that in November of 2016. Much had been written about that. Turnout problems in places like Detroit and Milwaukee in 2016. In 2016, our get-out-the-vote, it should be 2020. In 2020, our get-out-the-vote has to be better. And it was, thanks to CTCL and the Zuckerberg money and the five largest cities in this state being willing to take directives from a partisan funding source. Oh. These, are the, uh, these are the plans that the cities... Uh, came up with in response to show CTCL that they were going to follow CTCL's directives. So City of Milwaukee writes, facilitating conversations with get out the vote, not COVID safety, get out the vote, nonpartisan coalitions to, to ensure messaging is relevant and resonates to all City of Milwaukee voters, including identifying key target audiences. It doesn't say every citizen in the state of Wisconsin who might need some help voting. It doesn't say we are going to generate as many votes as possible across the state of Wisconsin or across the city. We're going to identify key target audiences and tactics for each. That is voters who they described as Latinx, African-Americans, non-English speaking, and those who are no longer on probation or parole for a felony. The whole plan that the five cities in their entirety joined in on tells each of the five cities that voter outreach and education, doesn't say voter education about COVID safety, voter outreach and education is also needed to encourage and explain new voter registration. Get out the vote. They are not going to make the same mistake they made in 2016. David Pluff, I, I have to spend time on this because this is the hub of the plan. This is why we're getting such, my office and me personally, we're getting attacked and we're getting such pushback. And we're getting pushback both in legitimate areas, uh, that is the courtrooms of this state, uh, and pushback in other areas too. Pluff tells us, that in 2016, Florida had a large number of minority voters who were now eligible to vote. All in all, there was this huge target population of potential supporters, invisible and thus uncounted to the polls. This is the man who is distributing Zuckerberg's money to CTCL and telling CTCL who to target, not opening up for grant applications, this is the man who's directing the money that came into our state and was focused almost exclusively 
uh, on our five largest democratic cities until a citizen named Jay Stone came forward to complain about it well in advance, I should note, well in advance before any other political expert noted the trouble that CTCL grants were going to cause and the partisan nature of the disruptive. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more because he had some interesting correspondence with Ms. Wolf, which is relevant for a number of reasons. David Pluff extolling the virtues of getting out the vote. The Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan, all five municipalities, this, this is the cities talking to CTCL, express strong and clear needs for resources. You expect in the Wisconsin Safe Voter Plan resources for COVID safety, because that was its purpose. No, it's resources to conduct voter outreach and education to their communities, almost as if Mr. Pluff wrote this himself with particular emphasis on reaching voters of color, low-income voters without reliable access to internet, uh, disabilities, and primary languages, not English. Another code phrase that CTCL used, which puzzled me from the beginning, and it's been a burr under my saddle forever, for, since I started reading this. They said, initially, before they started talking about the need to turn out the African-American vote in the three cities, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee. They, start, they started using a phrase uh, along the lines of, we have to target historically disenfranchised populations. Historically, so sometime in the past, disenfranchised, disenfranchised mean you don't have the right to vote. You don't have the right to vote. None of these voters who were the targets of the Zuckerberg Five Cities get out the vote campaigns that I know of were disenfranchised. Everyone has the right to vote. This poll, this poll, why? Why the focus? Why, on, why does David Pluff and the Biden campaign, and why did the CTCL money directed to the five cities, why did it focus on African Americans? Because... As the Brookings Institute tells us uh, from November 2020, the headline, Black Americans have a strong preference for the Democratic Party. Rates of 88% in 2008, 88% in, tw in 2012, 86 uh, in 2016. That's the percentage of African American voters who voted for the Democrat ticket. Now, let's get back to that historically disenfranchised. You would think, given all of this buildup and all of these directives to the cities to turn out the African-American vote, gee, African-American people aren't, aren't voting. We have to do something. We have to spend what becomes government money by means of this, I, I don't want to call it a grant. It was payment for services rendered. Payment for services rendered from Mark Zuckerberg to our five cities to turn out the African-American vote in cities like Milwaukee. The, the inference we're supposed to draw from that, Madam Chair, the inference we're supposed to draw, African-Americans don't vote. And, and special accommodations must be made for them, which didn't sound right to me from the beginning because I don't believe there's anything about any 
part of African Americans or any other uh, individuals that prevents them from voting. And the polling data uh, sure backs that up. African Americans, according to the headline, have among the highest turnout rates in past presidential elections. The Guardian in 2019 tells us black people don't, quote, black people don't vote is not based in data. Though they are only 13% of the U.S. population, black voters are among the most stable voting bloc in politics. The Brookings Institute in November 2020, and 2020, meaning the high uh, African-American turnout, is not an anomaly. Black voters have long pulled their weight relative to other racial groups. So this need, this so-called purported need uh, to get people to vote, I want you to bear with me just for, this is under a minute, but this is very telling because it goes to the central cause for why the CTCL money was directed to the cities for the purpose of turning out the African-American vote. I want to ask you about your, your, your running mate. Um, I don't know if you saw, well, I saw the day that a news report broke that uh, Amy Klobuchar was being vetted, and a lot of people on social media, they're not too happy about that. And um, it's because they want your running mate to be a black woman. I don't know if you saw the op-ed in the Washington Post by some of the leading black women voices in this country, and they feel since black women are such a loyal voting block, and black people saved your political life in the primaries this year. They have things they want from you, and one of them is a black woman running mate. What, what do you say to them? What I say to them is that I'm not acknowledging anybody who is being considered, but I guarantee you there are multiple black women being considered. Multiple. We don't Thank get you so much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at 6 o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black, it don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. Okay. All right, thank you so much. That's obviously candidate Biden. I have no objection. I applaud him for identifying potential voters for his campaign. He's doing what partisan candidates for office do. He's identifying his likely voter base, and he is giving all of his reasons. I don't agree or disagree with the substance of what he said, but obviously he's trying to appeal to a voter base that he believes is for him. I have no issue with that. That's how political campaigns are run. What I have an issue with, and what I think everyone in this state ought to have an issue with, is when public money, and we're not just talking about money. Okay, money is important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. We're talking about the entire administrative apparatus of our five largest cities, as well as with the cover of, I hope to be, the soon-to-be-dismantled WEC. 
to do a partisan campaign drive to get out the vote for Joe Biden. That's what I object to, Madam Chair. What does all of this? I ask myself, I ask you, I would like very much to ask all of the people involved, but they won't talk to me. What does all of this, any of this, have to do with COVID safety? Okay. This is, this is all the literature getting out the vote. Oh, all right. Just in case there's, just in case there's any doubt about the uh, CTCL uh, direct involvement uh, with our public, what should be public and transparent and accountable elections administration processes, let's take a look at this email. Center for Tech and Civic Life's had an employee, Josh Goldman, and he refers to Noah Pretz of the Elections Group uh, to the Milwaukee Election Commission Executive Director, Claire Woodall Vaughn. Goldman's stated intention is to embed a middle management employee inside the Milwaukee Election Commission. That is a step, <laughs> That's a, I, I hope you agree with me because I believe it, and I think most of my fellow citizens believe it. That's a step too far. He, Josh writes, in last week's call, you mentioned an interest in adding middle management staff capacity. Noah Perrin from the Elections Group, one of the CTCL corporate partners, has a lead on an experienced election staffer that could potentially embed with your staff. This is a public office. Embed with your staff at the Milwaukee Elections Commission in a matter of days and fill that kind of role. Now, this is, a set, this, this is important because in this testimony, Megan Wolf describes her knowledge about the CTCL grants. This is the director of our Wisconsin Elections Commission in front of this committee on March 31, 2021, and I think it's important that we all hear what she has to tell us about what she knows of these grants. Uh, the money that was coming from, you know, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say Facebook because I don't want to go through a long list of what the acronyms mean. Essentially, it was coming from Facebook through Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and so that's, the, that's in addition to the Zuckerberg money that was coming. Now, this was like 1.6.3, 6.3 million. Six, oh, wow, okay. So I was off a little there. But Green Bay in particular, I think, got 1.1 million. So I, for the life of me, cannot understand when they had had lots of money coming from the federal government leading up to the November election, what on earth did they do with $1.1 million? 2.3. It's a lot of money. Okay, What on earth did they do with all of that? Do you, I mean, do you have an explanation for that? I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I can provide information on the federal grant, but they, again, we were not involved in any way, shape, or form in private grant funding. That would all happen through their municipal governance structure. At no point were we privy to that. Okay. Well, is there some sort of a... Is there something 
keeping the Elections Commission from finding that out from particularly these five municipalities that receive such large grants? Representative, we have open records requested for that information. So, so you're not denied? I mean, they can't say no if you request how that money was used. That's correct. It would, you know, there's mechanisms in statute in terms of what the commission can look into through a formal complaint. And one was filed with the commission, but again, the commission doesn't have any sort of statutory authority over private grant funding. And so it was dismissed. Okay, so now, did you receive communication uh, from clerks around the state? Um, and I assume you did. I just want to get a confirmation of that. When this group CTCL, which is the Facebook money, when they started uh, getting emails from this group saying that, hey, we can help you with the election, we have funding available, I, I assume that you received communications from clerks wondering about this group? No, I, I, I don't believe we did. Um, I, I wasn't aware that this grant was available, nor was I aware that, that clerks were engaging with it. And so I'm not aware of any point other than um, I believe Green Bay, for example, they submitted an amended um, plan. The relevant parts, the relevant parts, and there's nothing, if we were to continue watching it, there's nothing back uh, on the question of Ms. Wolf's knowledge of the CTCL grants. She said it kind of fast, so we've printed it out on the next screen. And what the next slide will, will show is the transcript uh, of that exchange. And in relevant parts, uh, when Representative Thiesfeld asked Ms. Wolf about her knowledge of the CTCL grants, the germane uh, section of her first response, at no point were we privy to that, the information. He's asking about the information about the CTCL grants. At, at no point, Ms. Wolf says, were we She's speaking as the head of WEC, privy to that. And then below, in response to Representative Diesfeld's continued questioning about the CTCL grants and whatever information she had about it, no, I, I don't believe we did. I wasn't aware that this grant was available. I wasn't aware that this grant was available. Nor was I aware that the clerks were engaging with it. So I'm not aware of any. Let's talk about the Megan Wolf, Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, and the Zuckerberg Five Cities connection. Let me introduce you to Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, the man who ran the election on election day in the city of Green Bay. Mr. Rubenstein is a lawyer uh, who lives in uh, Brooklyn, New York. He is employed by the National Vote at Home, at all points relevant to this discussion. I believe he's got a, a I believe he's got a, a job in the financial industry now. But at all points relevant to this discussion, he worked for National Vote at Home Institute, another Soros-funded organization who is for uh, turning votes, turning ballots into everyone voting uh, from home. Uh, we see he, that's relevant. His employment is relevant because National Vote at Home Institute was one of the corporate partners that are referred to in the CTCL instructions to the five cities. This is the agreement they signed on to. The cities agreed to work with the CTCL partners. 
And if they didn't, if they wanted to work with somebody else, if the cities wanted to work with somebody else, they had to ask CTCL's permission first. So this is Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, uh, who would eventually move temporarily to the city of Green Bay uh, during the November 3rd, 2020 presidential period, including Election Day, where he ran the show. The clerk, Chris Misteski, a very faithful and dedicated and honest and brave public servant, quit about two weeks prior to Election Day because, she said, Spitzer Rubenstein and all these other outsiders are taking over all my job duties. Who's that quote from? That quote is from the municipal clerk of the city of Green Bay, Mr. Spitzer Rubenstein. So, well, this, uh, we, we've captured one of the emails. There was an email preceding this from Michael Spitzer Rubenstein. Oh, is it on there? I can't. Okay, thank you, Mr. Lancaster. The, the initiating email is in the top right of this program, and it's from Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, August 28, 2020, to Claire Woodall Vaughn. Claire is the head of the Milwaukee Elections Commission, the administrative arm of the city of Milwaukee's elections. Claire, great talking to you yesterday. Just a few notes on follow-ups. First point that's highlighted. Can you connect me to Reed Magny, then an employee at WEC, and anyone else who might make sense at the WEC, Wisconsin Elections Commission? So then, Claire Woodall Vaughn emails her friend, Megan Wolf, among others, on August 28 at 1055. She didn't let much time go. Yeah, the email from Rubenstein, Spitzer Rubenstein comes in at 1017. Uh, Ms. Woodall Vaughn gets busy at, at 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later. She emails uh, to Reed Magny and to Megan Wolf and to others at WEC. Hi, Megan, Richard, and Reed. I just wanted to reach out and connect you and connect you with Michael Spitzer Rubenstein and Hillary Hall from the Vote at Home Institute in case you think other clerks or the WEC staff would find working with them useful. Now, now that <laughs> this is very odd for several reasons, and I'm beginning to appreciate the reasons why Ms. Wolf might not want to talk with me. Here in this email, she is acting within about 15 minutes or so, on the request from Mr. Spitzer Rubenstein to provide Spitzer Rubenstein with connections at WEC. I just want to reach out and connect you with Spitzer. This is the corporate partner of CTCL that would wind up running the Green Bay election. So the next slide... Megan Wolf, Megan Wolf, 
And she's sending this to Chris Teske, who at that time is a Green Bay uh, County clerk, or I'm sorry, uh, city clerk. So Megan Wolf sends this out August 28 at 11.07. The request comes in at 10.55. And so about 12 minutes later, not a lot of time for research. If you're unaware of a situation, if you do not know what the National Vote at Home Institute is doing or why they're doing it. Not a lot of time to go figure and research that out, but here we have the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission sending it out to all of the Zuckerberg five cities, except, of course, Milwaukee, because the request came into Milwaukee. And here's Ms. Wolf passing along a recommendation and resource from Milwaukee. Just wanted you to be aware in case you thought this might be a group you are interested in working with or learning more about. Claire in Milwaukee okayed me sending this along, and it sounds like you should reach out to Michael at, in his email, if you are interested in learning more. Now, why? This is the head of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, who, when it's convenient to the commission's, to the commission's purposes, expresses that she is the director of all elections in the state. But then when it comes to litigation liability, as we learned in September from the WEC meeting then, she then turns around and takes the position that we in WEC don't really do anything. We're not responsible. We just provide some general guidance. But any kind of legal liability is on the fault or the part of the clerks. So here you have the self-identified director of all elections in the state, and she is giving her okay. Hey, here's a, here's a recommended resource. She's going to be so irresponsible that she, as the director of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, is just going to unknowingly recommend an unknown Michael Spitzer Rubenstein from an unknown national uh, vote-at-home institute that defies common sense and human experience. I suggest that she knew all about Mr. Spitzer Rubenstein, she knew all about National Vote at Home Institute, and she knew, contrary to what she told Representative Thiesfeld twice in 2021, about the CTCL grants. Okay, so this brings us to the, oh, <laughs> Don't just take that exchange for the uh, idea that she knew about the CTCL grants. Take her own writing, another writing. And that writing has its start in a complaint filed by Wisconsin resident Jay Stone. And he filed, he filed this uh, complaint about he asked Weck, he asked Megan Wolf, please look into this CTCL grant. He filed the complaint on August 28, 2020. Coincidentally, coincidentally, the same day as all of these emails. And she didn't know. So he files the complaint saying, look, 
This isn't some COVID safety plan that Mark Zuckerberg is funding through CTCL and his political, Mark Zuckerberg's political director at uh, uh, Pluff. Th- this isn't, this isn't some get, uh, COVID safety thing. He's telling us, Stone predicted this. August 28, 2020, more than two months before the November 3rd, 2020 election. And Wolf rejects his complaints and says, no, we don't have jurisdiction. Suddenly, the director, the self-identified director, and this is one of the reasons why WEC has to go. There is a unknowingness which WEC capitalizes on and has always capitalized on going back to the days when Kevin Kennedy ran GAP. And this is something his former employee, Megan Wolf, has kept up. Why has she kept it up? Because it's to wex a powerful power advantage. And that is to represent themselves as the directors of Wisconsin elections when they want the 1,852 clerks in this state to do something. I personally interviewed one fine, honorable public servant, who served in one of the counties 24 years. And once we got past small talk, I said, so who runs Wisconsin elections? Without missing a beat, this 24-year employee of the clerk's office says, whack. Hmm. That took me aback. And I said, well, how do you reconcile that with the statutes that tell us that the clerks run the election? Well, WEC tells us they run it. But then when it comes time to face the music and answer questions about their conduct, Weck through Megan Wolf, we have nothing to do with it. Then my question is, what do you do? What do you do? Why do we fund this with a $10 million budget? According to them and all of their legal defenses, they have nothing to do with the actual substance of administration of Wisconsin election. This defies understanding, unless you view it as a purely political power move on their part. And then I say, congratulations, you've been getting away with something. If you want to look at it just as that, then you say they've done it well. And the same is true here. She rejects Stone's uh, complaint because the commission doesn't have any statutory authority over private grants. That may be true as far as it goes, but I think it depends on what those grants are for. If they are for influencing the administration of elections in Wisconsin, just like Stone, Mr. Stone outlined in his complaint, then it's without question that WEC has all the jurisdiction in the world to look into that matter. In fact, it is their duty to look into matters that affect the conduct of Wisconsin elections. Otherwise, why are they there? So, Wolf also says, oh, you had insufficient form. Uh, you didn't articulate, <laughs> Mr. Citizen, non-lawyer, you did not precisely articulate a particular statute. We don't expect that. We, we don't, the, the state, no agency of the state of which I'm aware requires or even expects a citizen complainant, non-lawyer, to cite a specific statute. Okay, so as absurd as her response to Mr. Stone, as, as absurd as Megan Wolf's response 
to Mr. Stone's complaint is, at the very least, it shows that two and a half months prior to the election, five months before her testimony, before this committee, she knew. She knew because she wrote the letter back to Mr. Stone, denying that she had anything at all to do with the question of who is influencing Wisconsin elections. Ms. Wolf uh, tells Mr. Stone on September 11, 2020, I am writing to inform you that I have determined that the complaint about CTCL and and the Zuckerberg Five Cities is not in proper form And it does not state probable cause that a violation of an election law that the commission has jurisdiction over has been violated. That is a preposterously cramped reading. In fact, it is an inaccurate reading, which Ms. Wolf knew at the time to be inaccurate. She had jurisdiction. WEC had jurisdiction over this, no question. Complaints filed under Section 5.06 are filed by individuals uh, that are served by local election officials, but you do not reside in any of the municipalities cited in the complaint. Stone did not limit his complaint to any of the five cities. He complained about the conduct of the Wisconsin elections process and procedure and administration and the unfair partisan influence that Mark Zuckerberg's money washed through CTCL at the direction President Obama's former campaign manager, David Pluff, with the kind assistance of all of the former Obama staffers at CTCL and the complicity of the five mayors of Wisconsin's largest Democratic cities. That's what he was complaining about. He was entitled to file this complaint. But you do not reside in any of the municipalities cited in the complaint. Your complaint is related to the acceptance of grant funds by me. Ooh, so she knew about grant funds on September 11. But the complaint does not allege any violations of election law that the commission has authority over to enforce or investigate. It's absurd. So we get to the... We get to the heart of it at the bottom of her email or letter. I'm returning your complaint as it is not sufficient to form and fails to state probable cause. Anyway, a repetition of what we had. Is that a violation? Well, anyway. What? Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> Sometimes you get too close, just like in a legal case. You get too close to the facts and you presume knowledge on the part of your listeners. The significance of this, obviously, is Megan Wolf's signature. She knew. She knew. So we can get into the details of the uh, of Mr. Stone's complaint. It, it the the heart of it is that the crux of it is that he's complaining about the very things that wound up happening. He just happened to, to do it. He foresaw all of it. He knew the results. He did it. He complained before anybody else did after the money started rolling into the cities. We've got other uh, nonprofit leftist uh, organizations influencing the Wisconsin elections during the presidential election. 
Uh, they are SEER, which I've already discussed. Center, I think I'm the only one who calls it SEER, but Center for Election Innovation and Research and the Electronic Registration Information Center, ERIC, which we've touched upon. Why is this significant? Why is their deep involvement in Wisconsin elections significant? They're private organizations that are responsible, in Eric's case, are being paid for by the people of this state, supposedly to provide accurate voter rolls, to make it so, not provide accurate voter rolls. They'll say, no, that's not our job. Their job is to provide the accurate information necessary for WEC and the clerks to maintain accurate voter rolls. That's what we pay them for, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But yet, even in, as all of you know on this committee, even in response to the letter from the committee asking Ms. Wolf for information that happens to be, in, that belongs to the people of this state, Eric denies it. Megan said, Ms. Wolf says, uh, no, I can't. I'd like to provide it. Gee, I want to be cooperative, but I don't want to talk with you. And the law says I can't. And oh, by the way, I have this contract with Eric, which says that you, Madam Chair, and no member of your committee may have this information. That is not a publicly accountable organization, even though they are critically, critically involved in public elections. You know, I, I think we're going to have a chance to talk about these groups in greater detail as, as time goes on. That's right. These partisan groups, partisan people coming in and pretending to be for transparency, for accurate voter rolls, Let's take a look at Electronic Registration Information Center. Eric says its goal is cleaning up voter rolls. I think, I think the upshot of this is that the records show that as a result of all of their work of cleaning up the voter rolls, something like two voters have been excluded from a voter list as opposed to deactivated, which is a confusing methodology not promoted, not designed, and not, in fact, to promote transparency. This gets back to my second recommendation, which is to make this voter roll. Don't, don't pay Eric to keep it secret from this committee. Don't pay Eric to keep it secret from the people who've already paid for it. Don't, keep, don't pay Eric to keep it secret at all. Just make it available to the public. We own it. It should be out there for everyone, not behind the locked doors of the cash register of Eric. And they won't even sell that to you. Well, these are some opinion uh, pieces attacking Eric. I may share those opinions, but I don't need to take up more time talking about it. Yeah, I, I think that one of the reforms uh, that we should make We've got election reforms uh, to instill voter confidence in the election integrity. Uh, Ms. Wolf should be removed 
as from WEC for cause. She has not been, she has not been serving the way that she should be serving. She has not been cooperative. She has not been administering these elections in a fair, transparent, and accountable way. The reasons include the illegal uh, ballot drop boxes, which we go into in great detail in our report, stating that she had no authority to review complaints about the fundamental processes and procedures of the administration of Wisconsin elections. That, that does not make any sense. I've already gone into my uh, recommendations, but we're getting to the end. Dismantle WEC. Have our voter rolls be accurate. Not the way that Gab under Kevin Kennedy did it for many years and that his former employee Megan Wolf has kept it. And I know the voter data system, they're going to say, people talk about it as one list. It's not really one list. It's multiple lists. Yeah, it's multiple lists because that's the way you, Kevin Kennedy, designed it and implemented it. And that's the way Eric wants it to be. And that's the way Megan Wolf and the people in control, the bureaucrats at WEC, want it. They want it to be confusing. They want it to be opaque. They do not want it to be transparent. Make it accurate. No dead people. Let's start with that. Let's remove the dead people from our polls. And I know Kennedy and Mr. Kennedy and Ms. Wolf will say, Oh, but they're deactive. Yeah, they're deactive, all right. They're dead. Take them off our voter roll. Make our voter roll accurate in the way the average person, the reasonable person, not the reasonable WEC bureaucrat, but the way the reasonable person understands accurate. People who are alive, people who live at the place that they say they lived at. And then let's make it so that when people vote, Anyone in this room, anyone in their house or apartment or whatever, can go and compare the two lists of who was eligible to vote with who in fact voted. These are not revolutionary ideas. These are not wild suggestions. This seems to me, I've only been at this for about six months and I came up with it. If I can, anybody can. Let's make them accurate. Let's make them public, right? <laughs> if you're for honest and transparent and accountable elections, I don't know how you could disagree with that. Oh. <laughs> we are getting a lot of pushback from the manufacturers of these voting machines. A lot of pushback. And they have a lot of money to push back with and a lot of lawyers. I've got four or five. Let's make it so that if you are going to participate in Wisconsin elections by providing the physical machines by which those elections, those ballots are counted and the totals are reported, that when the legislature, which uses the public's money to pay you, when that legislature has questions, I don't think it's too crazy to expect that these people will come and answer those questions. But right now, they are refusing. They're refusing to even talk. 
Now, a lot of people have criticized me for a lot of things. But one of the things that they've criticized for me is, well, they want to talk with you, but they just don't want to talk to you in private depositions. Okay. Okay. But you suggest, all of the people who've contacted me through their lawyers uh, to say that, they want me to come up with a plan or proposal. I'm not willing, part of my job, my, my office is called the Office of Special Counsel, but part of my job is to be legal counsel for the assembly and to assist this committee according to the terms of my contract. I have not, I have not surrendered that because I do not believe it is within my authority and I do not believe it is consistent with the best interests of the legislature. Right now, the Republicans are in charge, but someday the Democrats might be in charge. And, and when they are, when they are, they're going to want to have the right to have legal counsel, and they're going to want have the right, they're going to want to have the right to have their questions answered, much like the January 6th Commission is very robustly enforcing their questions about one discrete incident that happened on one day and resulted in some damage at the Capitol. But they have people in solitary confinement, and they have people under threat of, of, of being arrested. They are robustly, the Democrats on the January 6th uh, committee are robustly pursuing the full extent of that legislators, of that legis- of the Congress's authority to conduct legislative oversight. It is not within my authority And I do not believe it is consistent with the best interests of the legislature for me to unilaterally give up what I view. And so far, what I have heard from the assembly, their view, which is if the legislature, there's very solid state Supreme Court cases, Falvey, going back to Justice Goes in 1856, when the legislature, I don't want to give that power up. That's for the legislature to decide. And if they are sincere, why not put a proposal forward to me so I can take it back to you, my employers, and say, is this okay? Rather, I'm supposed to unilaterally. That's their vision over at Josh Call's Department of Justice. That's the vision of the of the assistant attorney generals that I'm supposed to just keep unilaterally giving up authority on the part of the legislature, and then they'll decide whether they choose to recognize it. They may have some temporary victory in the Dane County courts. I expect that. But I believe ultimately the full power of the constitutional obligation and duty of this legislature to conduct oversight in the manner that it deems fit and most, and most likely to get to the truth, will be vindicated. And I see from the expression on everybody's faces that we should be done. And I have three slides, and none of them are that important. So <laughs> I will leave that to the websites. I could go on all day, but I think I'm a, a vote of one on that, on that question. Madam Chair, I know the hour is late. I know that I have presented a lot. I do not know what the schedule is. Oh, I'll end with this. Mr. Lancaster, thank you. People are going to ask, a lot of people are going to ask, what's next? 
what's next? I think it was about 10 days ago that Speaker Voss, and again in private conversation with me yesterday, uh, and at other times, Speaker Voss has indicated his full support for this investigation to continue. In fact, on the Jay Weber show about 10 days ago, uh, he said that once this report that I've delivered today is received, it marks just the beginning of the investigation. And I think he's right. I make myself available to questions at the scheduling of the committee. Sure. Uh, we appreciate your time today, and I'm sure there'll be uh, a couple questions here. So, uh, Representative Spicer. Mr. Gimlin, thank you for being here today. Uh, just to start out with, do you currently have a contract with the legislature? And given that you say this is just the beginning, does it have a date through which it runs? That's a, that's a good and complicated question. Let me take a sip of water and get right back to you. Thank you. I believe that I do have a continuing contract through the rendering of services. Others take the position that my authority ran out at the end of December of uh, 21. And to, as I have been throughout, I'm just going to be candid with you. I've been, I've been going back and forth with the speaker on the terms and the scope of the continued contract. And obviously it's on my mind. In fact, I brought a draft. I had signed, I had signed a couple of weeks ago the contract with the provision that the, well, I shouldn't go far, too far into detail. I believe that I do have a legally enforceable contract. Uh, others would say that it ran out at the end of December. I will tell you that I am in good faith, uh, substantial discussions with the Speaker of the Assembly, who has indicated that it is his desire to extend the contract, but with some modifications of its terms. So there's not currently a written contract extension. There's what? There is not currently a written contract extension past the end of last year. See, I, that's what a lot of people say. I, I think that the terms of the initial uh, contract called the uh, Independent Contractor Agreement, I, I believe that those continue through, and, and if, that's what I believe. But, but I, could, I understand the point of view uh, where you would say, well, gee, there's nothing that spells out what happens after uh, the end of December. Okay? That's what I can say. Um, and so, uh, I think we had heard maybe in the media that today was going to be, a your final report, obviously you're, you're making clear that's not the case, that it's an interim report that you're planning to continue. Given that, I'm just wondering, uh, the timing here, uh, last week in the assembly, we were voting on a number of election related bills. Uh, many of them, uh, frankly did not address some of the topics that, that you raise in your recommendations here. Uh, and it's my understanding the Assembly's not planning to meet again this session. Uh, it could, you know, we, we could next week, but but it doesn't seem like that's Speaker Voss's intention. So it seems like we're you maybe missed the window here on making changes. And, and Story of my life, Representative <laughs> Story of my life, but please. Uh, is there, I mean, is there a reason uh, for you coming in with, with an interim report the week after the legislature wrapped up its work? No, insofar as that question is asking me, was this, uh, 
like coordinated or something? No, I, they, Robin, the speaker, see, I'm at a bit of a no is the answer to that question, but sure. I want to tell you why, but I am the speaker's legal counsel. And, and to go into the contents, no, believe me, there's no coordinated, this, no, I'm sorry. I'm trying to think of a way to tell you without violating anything, and I can't think of one. And on the subpoena issue, uh, I think you said there's nine different lawsuits that you're currently involved it's in. It's about but nine. I sure. Uh, I understand uh, recently Speaker Voss said publicly that uh, he has worked with you to issue over 100 subpoenas, and I think we've only seen or heard about a fraction of those in media coverage or in some of these lawsuits. Can you provide this committee and the public with uh, a copy of all those subpoenas yes. and an indication of their current status? In other words, is the person contesting it, responding? Sure. Have you interviewed them? Yep. I'm, until you just said it, I didn't know that we hadn't given I, I guess I didn't put that on the checklist of things to do, but I will do. We will do that. And if there are other, I appreciate that. If there are other things, uh, you know, frankly, I think we only have, you know, the report. So if some, if something I'm going to ask for is in the report, sure. feel free to point me to where. But sure. otherwise, it would really be helpful to get the supporting oh. documentation. And so, you know, I would also ask for uh, the full copies of the videos that we were shown today, as well as. Um, in any additional supporting evidence of if those particular voters had in fact been adjudicated in a court to have their voting rights taken away or if they hadn't been. And, you know, if in cases where they had been, if you've been able to uncover where in the process that paperwork you might didn't make it to the clerk or, you know, a little too much credit on that. <laughs> but the answer is the answer is I'll tell you what, rather than go down a list, I would ask you, just as I said yes, because I want you to have the subpoenas. They're, as far as I'm concerned, they're public, unless I'm forgetting something about one or a few. Um, what I would appreciate is a list from you that I can take back with me and then provide you with a written response, rather than me just standing here uh, after a, quite a lengthy editorial process. Um, I'll work with you on that. I'll be happy to work with you on that. But I don't want to be put in the position where I'm saying yes or no, and then I walk outside or in the, in the car and the lawyer say, you shouldn't have done it. I would be happy to send you a written request. All right. uh, I'll yield for now to colleagues who have Yeah, Representative Subek, I know you have, we're next on the list. Thank you very much. Um, so I was trying, as you were going through your presentation, to listen to the presentation, but also look at the report that you just handed us. Oh, um, certainly it was hard to be handed a report. Um, and one of the things you didn't do, it's not hard to be handed a report, it's hard to be handed a report. What's the last part? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was saying it was hard to be handed a report moments before our opportunity to ask questions about sure. that report. So bear with me if some of the answers are actually in there and I haven't seen them yet. My time is literally yours. Sure. So, but before I get into the recommendations, um, I had a question about something that you actually said in your presentation and you did indicate you were editorializing just a moment ago. And I think that's probably a good description, but you mentioned that you don't have a dog in this fight. And that was, those were your words. Um, what's interesting is that you went through this list of folks who were involved in different ways with the grants or yeah. other things 
and tried to connect them through their past up to how they might have partisan leanings. And most people have partisan leanings of some sort, right? We all can acknowledge that. I guess that I could very easily do the same for you. You know, I could go back up and look at when you were a a Republican DA appointed by a Republican governor, right? I was an independent Okay, appointed by a Republican governor. No, no, I was I was not a member of either party. Okay, but you were appointed by a Republican governor. So you know, I could take that. I could look at who funded your Supreme Court campaigns, who spent money in those, make ties there. Certainly, I can make ties to the fact that you went to Serb Hall and spoke at a Trump rally immediately after the election results came out, and. um, we're quoted as saying, I don't... I disagree with that characterization, Representative. Okay. It, the way that I was told about it, it I, mm-hmm. I just sort of showed up that day. I was told that it was uh, a public event, and this was a few days after the election, mm-hmm. expressing concern over the conduct of the election. I did not know, and I don't believe necessarily that it... But anyway, did okay. I support... Okay. Pres- if you're asking... Did Mike Gableman, private citizen, support, vote for Donald Trump? I'll tell you. I'll violate the sanctity of the ballot box. You bet I did. Sure, sure. And I probably could have made that assumption. What I wanted to share with you was your quote, actually, um, from from that event in which you said, as and you were quoted, and I believe there's video actually of this as well, I don't think anyone would be here if we all had confidence this was an honest election. Yep. So... The reason I bring that up is you just did this whole sort of boogeyman scenario of this person once upon a time, right? I mean, I, you, Vicki Selko, for example, I remember when she Can was we the legal action. Can we please one question? I really sure, sure, sure. Question. Sure, I'd be happy to. I'd right. be happy to. So what do you want me to- um, but so you said I don't have a dog in this fight. Yes. And here you were at a rally that is saying that this wasn't an honest election. No, read your quote again, please. Okay, saying that. Talk about confidence in an honest election, read right? Read your quote again, please. I'd be happy to read it. I don't think anyone would be here if we all thought, if we all had confidence this was an honest election. Right, and as a prosecutor, as a DA, I didn't prosecute anybody who I didn't think was guilty. I have concerns. I'm honest and upfront about it, Ms. Zubek, mm-hmm. Representative right. Zubek. I'm not like the people that I just talked about who pretend to be, I have doubts. I had doubts, and obviously from today, nothing, I would say nothing that anybody said, but nobody said anything to me because they're all fighting me in court. I still have significant doubts. Yes, I had doubts from the get-go based on my observations and, frankly, mm-hmm. my experiences uh, working twenty over 24 hours at Central Count in Milwaukee. I had some quite startling it that was the first time i had ever been a poll worker and i believe it ought to be a requirement democrats and republicans if you're an elected official you should have to serve as a poll worker at least once per term because then you'll understand how we and i've served as a poll worker many times in the past um here in the city i said everybody yes yes no no and i was thank you for your service i was going to agree with you (laughs) that it's a very good experience because you see all of the checks and balances and all of the security measures in place Uh, anyway my point was i don't think it's a fair characterization that you have no dog in this fight i do believe there were some foregone conclusions okay but i want to get to your recommend please respond to that you are questioning my integrity and I must respond. Fair enough. 
I have been involved and, and supportive of campaigns. And I, no one ever talks about the financial contributions I gave to Democrats when I was younger. I have been involved with political campaigns where people have won and people have lost. Never before, never before did I take a look at all of the facts and circumstances and say, gee, I have real questions. So in other words, I think most of our fellow citizens, I think all of us, every reasonable person, can accept a loss. But when they have doubts about the way it was run, now that is separate. That is separate from saying, no, I want to continue the campaign through some kind of legislative or judicial or court. Pro- I know it's been done, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do that, Representative Subic. My career is mostly, I don't have to do that. Sure, sure. I don't have sure. to do it, and I didn't do it. Sure. And, and I'm coming in here... And one of the reasons why it took so long, Representative, I don't want all of the people watching or listening, mm-hmm. I don't want them to take Mike Gableman's word for it. I want to present to them, and in the report, I believe I do present, and in the, in the next few days as I respond to Representative Spreitzer's uh, request for information and produce all of the records that went into formulate, as I promised at the first committee hearing, which I've missed you up until now, mm-hmm. but uh, sorry, things get scheduled, multiple committees, and all sorts of things at the same times, and so. And I missed you sometimes when you made that appointment, and no one was at your office. Hmm. I missed you, did Representative Subic. But anyway, wasn't I missed you? But now absence makes the heart grow fonder, and here we are. Sure, sure, so, sure. <laughs> I told this committee at my first appearance. Someone asked me. I don't remember who. They said, do you think, are you subject to open records? And I said, no, I'm an investigation, and I believe I am exempt from uh, the normal uh, public records or open records requests. I am entitled to that. That was all of my conversations with the speaker, is that I was not going to be a a bureaucrat or a government functionary, but in fact, I was going to conduct an investigation. And I, but I did say... In response to whoever asked the question, I said, but at the end of this process, what I will deliver is every single record that went into the conclusions that I make. So nobody has to take my word for it. They can check all of the supporting documents and then they can judge for themselves. And I I, I hope that you will... Open that up not only to the records from which you drew conclusions, but to the entire record of the investigation and every record that you obtained, because in order to draw conclusions, people need to see the whole picture. So I'm hopeful that that's what you mean when you say that. Um, Will you be making all of those records available? I've just indicated to you what my plan is. Okay. Well, that didn't quite answer the question. That's right. I would love love to to say it again. No, no, I, I heard what you I heard what you said. All of the records that went into the supporting of my conclusion so that not selectively mm-hmm. as you are taking as you are so Mr. Gibbon, so, you chose no, no, your word very carefully. Representative, Wait, let him finish. The reason I saw you have question. the ability to let him finish. I would we are not going to just go back 
If you have a question, we will go back and forth. Okay, I'd I'm like to clarify to my question because I think he's giving me this. He's repeating what he said, which didn't answer my question. I was hoping to clarify. When you say, when you say that went into supporting is. my conclusions, does that include anything that might run contrary to your conclusions? Okay, my now this is why I'm still a little irritated by your first question about the dog. Not your question. I will stay here all day and answer questions. That's my job. Okay. And that is your right and obligation, just as my right and obligation on behalf of the legislature to conduct my investigation. But what I won't do, I have no ulterior motive in conducting this investigation other than maybe one final act of public service. And I mean that. I have asked to speak with all the members of this committee, Democrats and Republicans, and we had an appointment. I'm not trying. I want everybody to know. I can't hide it. What purpose would it serve for me to deliver a bunch of one-sided documents if on the most superficial review, or even after months of review, as I'm sure a lot of the people I mentioned will do, will say, well, he didn't, he only provided us the stuff that was favorable. I've been saying from the get-go, Representative that my integrity in this matter, my motives, my purpose of public service, which I have dedicated my career to. You said a little bit about your career. I spent a career in public service. As a DA, you might be interested to know, I took cases to trial that many other prosecutors would not because I knew it was in the best interest of justice and the individual. Doing the same thing here, And I want to be judged not on the fact that Tommy Thompson appointed me, even though I was an independent at that time, not a Republican or a Democrat. I want to be judged on the quality of my work. And in order to do that, I have to show people what I relied on. If there's a disconnect, well, then I have no credibility. And then this whole exercise has been pointless. Do I look or sound to you like a man who wants to do a pointless or illegitimate exercise. You may say illegitimate because you don't like the whole thing. I'm not in this for anything other than the truth. And you'll see that. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing those records. And as I said, I hope it includes all of the records. Just not not trying to impugn your integrity, but I hope it includes everything. So getting on to the recommendations in the report, many of which you didn't have a chance to speak to, in the presentation. How much, how much so I was, time do you have? Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I tried to pull out a few that I had questions about. Sure. So one of the first ones that stood out to me was that you suggest that we minimize pre-voting. And I guess that, you know, you indicate that in part because of the complications and counting and the time and whatnot yeah. it, that then takes. My question is, instead of trying to minimize pre-voting, which for many people is the only way that they can exercise their right to vote, why not adopt policies and provide resources such as Monday counting that would enable that would enable folks that would enable folks oh, to Monday exercise count. Monday counting? Yes, <clears throat> that that would enable the locals to res- the local clerks to be able to accomplish the task of getting those ballots counted without disallowing individuals who avail themselves of 
what you call pre-voting, what I would call early absentee voting, whatever you want to call it. I am, and ready, then second I am part, ready to respond right, to your question. Right, right. And then the second half of the question. Can I ask the second half of the question? Because okay. it is. It relates okay, go ahead. To, so first part was why not I understand. provide the resources. Go ahead. Second piece. If we were to minimize pre-voting, as you suggest, who would be entitled to the right to pre-vote? Who wouldn't? What would that minimization look like that's not outlined okay. in your recommendation? Those are great questions. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> as, far as, the, as far as the recommendation goes, um, it comes from the, the, the outline of it comes from the Carter-Baker Commission. President Carter, former President Carter and former Secretary of State James Baker, as I'm sure you're aware, led a commission following the 2000 election, especially the confusion that occurred in Palm Beach County in Florida. And they went about trying to find out, find ways to better run safe, you know, the, the fair, accurate, accountable, transparent elections that we're talking about. And their main recommendation of that was to say that mail-in voting, mail-in voting is the source, is the opportunity has the potential for a significant amount of fraud in it. Now, as far as the early voting, I listen, if, if you would like to sit down or write me a letter and, and we can discuss the contours of it, I'm happy to. I'm very happy to talk with you and work with you. I, as I stand here right now, I would be simply making it up if I said, ooh, I've got a perfect plan. I, I don't have a perfect plan, but I've got some ideas that I think are, are worth working on. And if you, you raise some good points, and I appreciate it. And maybe, even if it's just on this one tiny issue, Representative Subic, maybe if we can work together, I promise I won't talk. I'll just listen and take notes and then only talk if you ask me a question. Okay, I promise. That was that was an interesting um, All right, piece of that response. Subic, I'm gonna. Um, if you want to. <clears throat> okay, put me back I, on the list because I do have questions about some of the other recommendations. No, no, as I'm well. making that in good faith. Sure. It was it was the way you said the last part was. What um, I, that I would talk. Pay, anyway, it doesn't I matter. Can't. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. I I can I you know I don't Subic, get a lot of um, genuineness there, but I appreciate the offer. Representative Subic, I'm going to go to Representative. Murphy. By all means. You've been patient. Thank you know, you. Madam Chair. Just given the tone, I'm 55 years old. I am the son of a furniture salesman and a fifth grade Catholic school teacher. I am the first in my family to go to law school. I had many opportunities after law school in the private sector, working for insurance companies. I chose a half-time assistant district attorney job that paid $17,500 a year, which wasn't a lot of money in 1993 either. That's what it paid. Moving to a town that I had never been to before. I did it because I felt called to do justice for everyone. And whatever criticisms people have at me, they cannot say that I have not done justice in my career. So, please, 
No, no, I, that's all right. It's just the truth. We all pick our paths in life. You were the statewide president of NARAL. Uh, I was a prosecutor and a district attorney and a trial, a circuit court judge and a Supreme Court justice. So we all pick our different paths in life. I would just like to remind people that this is not a Spanish Inquisition. This was an opportunity for a report mm -hmm. that has taken a lot of time. I would really hope that regardless of your affiliation, <clears throat> that you would treat people with respect. And we, we certainly are going to have to do a bathroom break at some point here. So that being said, I'm going to go to Representative Murphy. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Gableman, for testifying before us today. Uh, Madam Chairman, I have about 12 questions. Uh, I think that would take me about as long as one or two from the other side. <laughs> so I'll get into it. When, when you would like to move on, uh, you let me know. Get two. Oh, it's a good All right. start. Well, I'll get, I'll get through a couple of them and more. So going back to the, to the uh, beginning of your presentation, uh, uh, Justice Gableman, um, the video of the elderly yes, sir. and disabled folks, um, that, was, that was very sad, very sad indeed. Uh, my question to you about that was, how did you find those people, and is there a systematic way that, that you can tell us about of being able to get to those people yeah, that, and, find, and, and you know, kind of root out this problem? They came to us, Representative Murphy. They came to us. And that's not to diminish at all the great skill and dedication that went into the production. I thought Attorney Cardall did a a fantastic job, and the unedited versions will show more of the same. He's, he's got a great touch. Mr. Hoyer um, from Kiwani County helped. I mean, he was, he was essential to that process. But, but the real answer is all those people came to us. How did, how did they find you? I mean, because, uh, you know, we, we work on the committee here. We're all very aware of you. Uh, people in the audience here, those that are very politically co connected, know about you. But, you know, if I start walking down my street and knocked on doors and said, hey, do you guys know what uh, Michael Gableman's up to? Yeah. Uh, they'd probably look at me like I was crazy. So, I mean, you know, the general public doesn't know as much about this as the rest of us. And, I, I agree and so with you. And, and one of the handicaps uh, that I've had, and this goes back to the contract question, We've got to get this contract situation squared away, okay? That's not my fault. My position has been the same mm -hmm. for six months. I want to find the truth. So, in answer to your question, we got 92,000 residents of these continuing care facilities. I view it... I'm going to keep going, whether anyone signs a contract or not. I can do it on my own, but I can't do it in the same way that I can do it as special counsel. This, this whole situation came to my office's attention, frankly. I mean, we all saw the videotapes of WEC commissioners saying, well, we know the law says that you have to provide special voting deputies. And we know the law is that nursing home employees may not participate in the ballot completion process with residents 
or even if they were an employee two years ago. But it wasn't until Sheriff Schmeling and a fantastic investigator named Mike Luell, who is now Lieutenant Mike Luell, and they, I think we say in the report, blew the doors off of the whole nursing home issue when they went public. And then I immediately got in contact. I drove down that night, the night of their press conference, I drove uh, from Waukesha County to uh, Racine, and I met with Investigator Luell, and then I got the people, I, the, my staff, involved in this, and we just did the best we could. And for an investigative office, anyway, we, we did the best we could, but we got a lot of people that we have to talk with. 92,000 people. Okay, it's a lot of votes. And in, a, in an election that had a, a differential of about 20, 21,000, 92,000 is a lot of votes. But more importantly for me, at least as important, I should say, I have, my parents are 95 and 90. I don't want anyone going into a nursing home and doing that. We got to find them. We have to talk with them. That's my answer. So COVID restrictions, uh, you know, denied access to a lot of families, to their loved ones. Um, but you're saying we saw a an increase. Were you able to, you're able to look at, at, the, at the nursing homes. So there's a big increase, though, yes. in voter participation. Yes. I, at this point, I can only, I, I have records that show involvement with some individuals, but I haven't fully investigated that, that yet. Um, I don't know what your question, I, I, we're well, going to get to the bottom of it. Well, I'm trying to get to, um, you know, so what suddenly causes an extreme increase in voter participation? You know, I have an excellent book for you to read, and it's called Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. And there, a, a very, very smart political operative, my hat is off to him. These are all smart people. These people I've been talking about, Clough and uh, Becker, and Tiana uh, Epps Johnson, these are very smart people, and they're very well funded from Mr. Soros and Mr. Zuckerberg and others. And so, I'm so I completely well, we talk it. about you know we've we've talked about um, oh, the CTC. What is what is that the result of the Pluff Plan? Okay. The Pluff plan that was put into motion when Zuckerberg hired David Pluff to be his director of political operations, and then Pluff directed the three hundred thirty to four hundred million dollars to CTCL and to David Becker's Sear organization. That's the one that Kevin Kennedy sits on the five man board of, and and the whole thing was was set out in that book. Okay, look at Milwaukee. Go to Milwaukee. Go to Detroit. Go to Philadelphia. Get out the early vote. Get out the early vote. Go to the African-American communities. Remember that November 11, 2016 op-ed piece 
that Plouffe wrote to the New York Times saying that Hillary lost because she didn't spend enough time and effort to get out the vote in places like Milwaukee and in places in the African-American community. So relating that to the nursing home uh, issue that you raise, how, how do I explain 95 to 100% voting in the Zuckerberg five counties in those nursing homes? At this point, I can only speculate, and I, your opinion, because I'm only speculating, everyone on this panel and this committee's opinion is as good as mine. I mean, should we be doing an analysis of, you know, the, what the percentage of voting was in nursing homes outside of those, those five uh, I, I think it's cities a, or counties? And then I think it's essential, and I, here's what I can tell you. I think in each of these nursing homes that we're, that we're talking about, where we saw these extraordinary, I mean, we're talking about thousands of residents in the, in the nursing homes, hundreds if not thousands. I don't remember, but it's a lot. It seems to me that the evidence we've been able to gather shows that in, in each of those nursing homes, there was one particular employee in each of those nursing homes who was particularly industrious when it came to assisting the patient or resident in filling out the ballots. Okay. Um, yeah, we're going to go on to... Um, okay. I was going to say... Thank uh, you, Justin. Yes, sir. Thank you. Representative, please. I assume you meant me, Representative, because we're all kind of representatives <laughs> up here. But it's been a long day. I get that. I'm <laughs> scared. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to thank you for being here, first of all. Appreciate the work that you've done on this report. Um, and I'm trying to kind of glance through it and listen and listen to questions. And um, so I just I'm wondering about the end when it's talking about decertification. Yep. Are, are you saying that we should decertify Wisconsin's votes from 2020? I, I'm not saying it and I did not say it because it's not my place to say it. What is my place to say and what I do believe and what I do say is that there appear to me, without having the benefit of, a, of input from any substantive witness, there appears to me very significant grounds for such an action. Um, Ledge Council, I'd just like to ask the same thing of you. I know that we've had a few different memos from Ledge Council and LRB on the matter. Can you just reiterate what options there are, if any, for decertifying? Do you want to give her a minute? Or do you want yes, to and, and if you want to look that up and, and gather your thoughts, we can get back to that, and, um, and I can go on with sure. part two of my, my question, if I, if I could. Um, the, the videos that you showed of the individuals in nursing homes, yep. um, I have to say, and I apologize if I get emotional about this right now, because... Um, I have a, a loved one who is actually going into memory care tomorrow after having three weeks in the hospital. So um, this is highly emotional and very personal for me right now. Um, I would say that with this individual, if, if we were to do a video today, they would appear very different than they were in November of 2020. Yep. Um, 
This person has lost probably 70 pounds of muscle mass. Um, they sometimes don't know what day it is, but I can guarantee you in November of 2020, they knew exactly who they were voting for and why they were voting for that person. And I just want to add that context to it when we are talking about dementia, Alzheimer's, and people um, you know, coming to the end, that there is a, a significant drop-off in, in their mental capacities sometimes. Um, I'm not saying that that was the case with all of them. I just want to add that to the equation. Um, and I know, um, and I'm kind of just talking here to let Ledge Council go and, and get their um, thoughts together. Um, but I know that this person, um, depending on who would have been in, in, in care of them or guardianship yeah. of them or whatever. I get it. Um, you know, the person's wife has a very different political opinion than, than all of the kids do and, and than this person does too. So, um, you know, there's, there's other pieces in there. And so, um, Ledge Council, did you, did I give you enough time to think, Peggy? I think so. Thank okay, you. good. <laughs> Uh, so I have issued memos that have been made public on, on this topic, and I guess I just want to kind of reiterate the, the substance of the memo is basically that there are stages at the municipal, then the county, then the state level for every vote count to be certified. Um, the Kind of the final uh, step is, is state certification. Uh, the, the slate of electors that are chosen by the voters is the manner that our legislature has uh, chosen for appointing electors. So there are some questions about whether the mm -hmm. constitutional uh, portion, of, I'm sorry, the part of the Constitution that states that electors are chosen in the manner decided by the state legislatures means the manner of popular vote or whether it means the nitty gritty of, of election administration. And there have been some court decisions that say no, it really means the manner is the, by the popular vote. Um, and at every stage is kind of a, an opportunity for challenge, is an opportunity for vetting, uh, but that our position is that once the electoral votes have been received by the Congress, that closes the door, that the, that the election is then done. Um, I have not had a chance yet, I'm sorry, to read the report or the arguments put forth here. But I did want to kind of just reiterate what our analysis has been thus far. Can I, can I draft off of that? Because she's right as far as it goes. You're, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. But okay. Legislative Council is right. And that's one of the things I, I address with a little more nuance uh, in the report. There, are, there is a gap right now in the procedures. However, uh, as I do say in the report, and I believe Legislative Council will agree with me, that there are actions for administrative correction. And actions for administrative correction are filed with WEC. But we have a problem here. And I, I go into great detail in the report. We, we go. This was a joint effort. I mentioned that I was great, grateful when I got here. I'm grateful for the good people that I've got to work with. All of us in this room need other people. And the people who've worked for me, it's been a labor of love for all the good reasons. And I'm Profoundly grateful, and I, I need to. This was not a Mike Gableman sole production. I, I couldn't have done anything without fantastic help from a lot of great people. We're so, all first like of all, that, my, <laughs> my my condolences upon the difficult situation that you and your loved one are going through. But I do go into and I should not but 
and I go into great detail in the report about the administrative corrective corrections process. However, I do point out the very difficult procedural process that need, that, sh that should be followed when the entity being complained about is WEC itself. Just as a judge cannot preside over his or her own case, I think it would be, I don't think it would be appropriate for WEC to be the judge. Um, so as you, as you're in response to your first question, that's one of the reasons I, I do not say, and plus, Representative Spritzer in his first question and then followed by Representative Murphy in terms of the whole status of this investigation. I, I don't know what I'm going to be allowed to do uh, after today. Okay. <laughs> I have some ideas and I've had some discussions, but I don't know. And so I don't stand here and say, yes, it ought to be decertified. I raise it as a possibility and suggest that if such an avenue were to be pursued, I believe that the conclusions in this report would support such a process. Thank you. I just um, appreciate hearing that from Ledge Council too, and I know that that has been a topic of discussion around this building of decertifying and whether that's possible or not, and um, it's not often that Representative Steinecke and I agree on things in general, but uh, we seem to both have the opinion that it's it's not possible to, to decertify. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, I, I think I want to clarify. I think what Justice Gableman is saying, the action for administration correction, for an administrative correction, is not a clear path. And I think the question then becomes, have we given ourselves too many hurdles to be able to 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 make a correction? And I, I think it's something that with WEC being part of the process, is there a real clear path for an administrative correction? And and I think am I misquoting you in part of that? I, I or am am I reading that wrong, Justice Gableman? It is true. I mean everything you say is true. And so we have to go through a number of factual issues that the statutes as presently written did not appear to contemplate. And I guess part of that would have to do with the fact that WEC's existence is not part of what most of the statutes contemplate, and they're less than comprehensive on what it is. But I do know that a fundamental precept of the law is that no person, no organization can be the judge of their own case. I am saying, though, that the general principles of decertification run to, and I think the legend, uh, Ms. Hurley alluded to this, if they're fundamental, and it's a political question, decertification is a political question, and the issue is whether there exist fundamental defects in the estimation of the political body, here I believe the state legislature. If there were fundamental defects in the administration and conduct of an election, it is up to the legislature to advance that cause. And then you further complicate it with the fact that the structural procedure for 
a decertification in, in uh, response to Representative Emerson's is less than clear and then complicated further by the fact that the administrative corrective action uh, would go uh, to WEC, and, and that just can't be. So there are a number of things, but I think one of my efforts was to highlight, highlight some of the concerns regarding the fundamental conduct of the 2020 election, and then provide that in the context of a decertification process, which I am not taking a position on. It's ultimate disposition. Fair enough. Uh, Representative Roser, you've been very patient. Um, thank you, Justice Gableman, for coming. I look forward to delving deeply into your 131-page <laughs> um, that we certainly have not had a chance to digest uh, in these hours that we've been here. I, I remember, and I want to see if um, you would comment on this, please. I remember very early in these informational hearings, yeah. two things, and I think I've mentioned this before, that really stood out to me from comments from previous people that testified before this committee. And you uh, made reference to that, that these are smart people. These are not stupid people. And I remember... Um, <laughs> I can't help but note the undertone of contrast with what you used. Yeah, but, well, that contrast was probably um, pointed. That's a joke. So, yeah, I got it. Um, so two comments were made <clears throat> very early on. The number one comment was... Um, you as a committee have your work cut out for you because these are worthy opponents. I remember that was the that <laughs> was the fright. No, oh, you didn't boy, say it. It was a previous person. <laughs> but uh, the the term worthy opponents was made. I understand Mr. Becker is tweeting about me as we speak. So David, hello again. We meet again. The second comment that I remember from earlier testimony was that people came into our state with the end justifying the means, and I remember those, that individual said, and they didn't give a damn about your election laws. <laughs> I remember that being said pointedly. So, so some of what we've learned from you today reinforced to me that there were election laws that were broken. Yes, but I question. think the second part of that is that because of the vagueness of some of our other election laws, right it allowed some of these things to occur that we would never have in a million years thought that all that money would be pouring in. And so there were advantages taken because there was some flexibility in our election laws. And, and we as a legislature need to now address tightening that up. That's a very difficult thing to do yes. under the current administration, and it's very frustrating because I think we have attempted to do that. So we've got two issues here. We've got election laws that were, I believe, blatantly ignored, and then we have, elect then we have other laws that are not as tight as they should be to prevent some of this other stuff from happening. So if you would comment I, on that, please. I, I, I think, and this is, this is an overarching legal issue that I have noticed come into play in, in all of the factual background concerning uh, this election administration process that I've been describing. And that is that the parties who are concerned, the relevant actors who I've been talking about, along with WEC, and Ms. Wolf and the bureau and the again, very smart lawyers. I shouldn't diminish them by, by saying bureaucrat. They're very smart people and they're very dedicated to their cause. They're well 
and they're well-funded. But here's, here's the fundamental difference. So much of what you're describing results from a view of the law with which I disagree that says if the law, this is, this, if, one of, if someone from one of the, of Eric or who knows who was here, they would say, well, the law didn't prohibit it. The law didn't prohibit it. No, the law didn't prohibit it because no reasonable person would ever anticipate that such a thing would be done. And we didn't think we had to write it down. And so I do not, I, I think that that line of thinking might get them in the door. You know, there's a difference between League of Women Voters assisting with, I don't know, licking envelope or, or whatever they do, ministerial tasks, helping people. I shouldn't diminish it, but helping people with perform the oftentimes the counterintuitive process of voting with engaging in a partisan get out the vote campaign. Because what I'm getting at is no, the idea that the law doesn't prohibit something may serve as a basis to get in the door. But once you're there, it doesn't serve as a basis to burn the place down. Thank you. Thank you. Representative Subek, you had another question. Thank you. And I'll just preface this by saying I have lots of questions about the recommendations I won't ask here today, only because I'd like to digest them a bit sure. further first. And hopefully we will have you back at some point to answer those. And, and I, do, so, I, I do throw out the, you know, if the three of you want to meet with me or if like some subset of this committee wants to meet with me. I prefer public committee meetings personally. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Right. That said, I just, I wanted to <laughs> let you know that I probably have more questions I'm going to ask here. But there was one comment that you made that I wanted some clarification on because you talked about this increase in voter turnout and, made it sound like there was this big increase for the Democrats. Um, can you speak to the numbers on that? I have the numbers in front of me from a, from a, um, from a PolitiFact. So I'm going to throw out that that's what's from. But looking at this, it doesn't look like voter turnout went way up out of the ordinary while it was up I from 2016. I have to interrupt because I don't yes. remember. He, Representative okay. Murphy asked me some questions about sure. nursing homes. But about general voter turnout, I don't know what you're referring to. Okay, I thought, I, the way that I understood it when you talked about the book and how to turn out voter, I can't remember oh. the name of the book. Okay, I'm sorry, I don't want to oh, try to quote it. Oh, it's called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. Okay, fair enough. David Pluff, who right, orchestrated right. the thing that went I understand that. that, I understand that. But then he, the question was, the question that I heard was, that, assuming I understood it, was why the increase in turnout. And it was attributed to that book. And I just wanted to point out that voter turnout was not out of line with past elections. It was up from 2016, but it was actually less than it was in 2004. And also that while Joe Biden got more votes than Hillary Clinton did, Donald but Trump also had gotten more votes than he did I in never 2016. Took any counter thing. I just explained to you All right, I what just, the question I just wanted to clarify I because... I mean, if you want to talk to the audience and do the same thing you tried to chastise me for, go ahead. I am speaking directly to you, Mr. Gableman. Okay, Representative Subin, go ahead. You asked a question 
about voter turnout, you gave an answer that implied something and I wanted to clarify. Okay, so you're saying you're you were answering the question of why voter turnout went up in nursing homes. I'd have to look. And you think it's because of that specifically. I don't know. Okay, I'm asking for clarification. So that's what you're saying. The question was specific. All right. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I just. Seems that there's a boogeyman in the room, and I just wanted to clarify <laughs> the turnout issue. All right. Feel feel free to feel free to laugh, Representative. All right. um, well, I wanted to make sure the numbers were clear because what I thought you were saying was the turnout had gone up, and I wanted to make sure I understood. I now have clarification on that. Thank you. We'll both have to go very back and specifically check mention nursing. Fair enough. Any further questions? Sure, Representative Murphy, I think you have a couple more. Sure. So um, I am going to tell you, Representative Murphy, at some point I would like to take a five-minute bathroom break if that's not uh, true. If you would like me to be in charge, <laughs> I would consider that a distinct honor. Oh, uh, please, no. So just going back to the, to the, uh, the elderly folks in the nursing homes, um, you said those, those families came to you. Now, I'm assuming... Most, I don't remember each one. Sure. I, no, no. If I'm going to be quizzed about I, who did what, I don't know. I'm not I, playing gotcha with you. Generally <laughs> speaking, as, as the best of my recollection, they came to us. We, we did not go knocking on doors asking them. Sure. And I think the, the, the point of my question here is that probably, I'm assuming, those uh, exact distinct voters didn't come to you. Oh, right. It was (laughs) a family member. And I'm assuming then also that the person that came to you wasn't trying to say, well, my father, my mother, is not capable of voting today. They weren't capable of voting at some previous election. Yes. Um, and I'm just trying to get to the point that it was, and what's your it's sort of made out here that that somehow right. that well they might not be capable today, but probably on election day oh, they I were. Understand. I, You're drafting off Representative Emerson's exactly. question, and, and you you ask a question that allows me to address a substantive point in her question, which I did not uh, address at the minute, and I should have, which is that obviously we know that these videos are going to be under scrutiny. And it does not, and more to the point, it does not serve the interests of justice or truth to come here and present videos which do not accurately reflect the point that we are using them to illustrate. That would be irresponsible, to say the least. So, Oh, no, these are individuals who, at the time of voting... Given the information that we have from their loved ones, from their family members, that they were in, I mean, some of them were done in December, okay, December of 2020. Sure. No, I'm sorry, December of 2021. But the the relatives and, and family members all said that, yeah, there wasn't some precipitous decline in their mental abilities. It was a fair representation of, uh, of where they're at. Yes, sir. Uh, so... I wanted to ask you about the timing of the CTCL grants. Yes. As I understand it, and, and, and you can clarify this for me, as I understand it, 
the CTCL grants that came out to the Wisconsin five cities uh, came out during the summer of 2020. Yes, sir. Then there were additional grants made to, I think the number I recall was like 220 other municipalities. 190 the is the number I remember, okay. but there are different Fair numbers enough. all over. Yep. What was the timing of that? Because as I saw it, the, 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 the money that came out to the five cities came out early, yeah. and then it, it was I sort of an afterthought in a way to well, come back and give any money to any of the other cities. And I think the accuracy of that understanding is bolstered by two facts. One, we consider the $8.8 million delivered to the Zuckerberg Five cities. They like to call themselves the Wisconsin Five. Wisconsin Five, to me, is a term of respect. Yeah. I want to be accurate. These were the Zuckerberg Five cities, got the $8.8 million. And then the timing, and I, you, you raise an excellent question, the timing of the sprinkling of the relatively insubstantial amount divided between 190, 196, 200, whatever the number is, municipalities came only after Mr. Stone filed his complaint on August 28, 2020, with Megan Wolf, and she denied it. And then all of a sudden, we see CTCL getting a little more expansive in its geographic concerns. And th that's the first time they went off of the, of the plan that was articulated by their political director uh, and benefactor, Mr. Pluff. And they did it only after questions were raised. And, and I don't have to say that in a general way because all of this is documented. You, we saw the records. We have more records to show that when after Mr. Stone complained about this, and one of the things he complained about, which I thought was very insightful, all of it was insightful, but I thought one of the most insightful things, he said, hey, this isn't a grant where notice of the availability of these funds was made generally known within a, a relatively broad group of people who were then invited to apply and see if they meet set out criteria, these five cities were hand-selected by CTCL. And then the grant money wasn't a grant money, it was payment. Because if you give a grant, I think the common, you can find a law dictionary that'll be different, but I think the reasonable person understands grant to mean here, it might be for a specific purpose, but implement it the way you think it is. Not, here's the money, but you have to partner with National Vote at Home Institute. You have to partner with the people we tell you to. You have to spend your election administration budget in the way we tell you to, or, and here's what transforms it from a traditional grant to more of a contract for employment or agency. And to be clear to everyone who's listening, I'm suggesting a similarity between a contract of employment or a contract of agency in the traditional workplace center, and I'm comparing that to being similar to the agreement that CTCL entered into with the five Zuckerberg cities who were required to do what CTCL told them to do 
or they had to give the $8.8 million back to CTCL. So um, Megan Wolf has suggested, insinuated, or whatever, that she knew nothing about this process? I have the transcripts. She said she didn't know about the CTCL grants. I can't remember word for word, but she said it twice, at least twice. Yet there are other places where it's showing that she had to know about it. Well, she had to know through the emails, and, and that does require some inference that within 12 minutes, if she, she responds to recommending Michael Spitzer Rubenstein, gee, if you don't know anything about National Vote at Home Institute, as I, I did not prior to this six months ago, I would have to do some looking into it. But Ms. Wolf seemed awfully familiar for that 12-minute turnaround time from the request from Claire Woodall Vaughg for an introduction, and then Megan Wolf complies. She, she does it within 12 minutes to the other cities. It certainly raises the question to me of was the, the purpose of that email more to provide cover to those five Zuckerberg cities in the form of after-the-fact WEC approval than it did anything else. She's recommending she knew, and then we know from the fact, just by a, the way things work out, a, a remarkable coincidence, August 28, when she, when she sends the emails out introducing the CTCL partner National Vote at Home representative Michael Spitzer Rubenstein to the other Zuckerberg Four uh, municipalities, that's the same day that Mr. Stone filed his complaint about the CTCL money going towards the Zuckerberg Five cities, which Megan Wolf then personally signed the letter denying that she, in fact, even had the authority to look into the question. And so Mr. Stone's that certainly gives to the lie, gives lie to the suggestion, to the statement made twice in response to Representative Thiesfeld that she knew nothing about the CTCL grants. You know, the Wisconsin Election Commission, to me, is much like the bureaus that work for the legislature. We call them nonpartisan legislative, whether it's the Fiscal Bureau or the Audit Bureau, whatever. And it's interesting to me because just last week, we honored the, the head of the Fiscal Bureau, Bob Lang. 50 years of service in a nonpartisan agency. And I think truly, Bob Lang is a nonpartisan uh, administrator in, 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 this, in this government. Um, and if Bob Lang were somehow involved with the Koch brothers or, or Alec or something, I mean, people here would be shocked and would be outraged by it. But Bob Lang served here for 50 years and he never did anything to draw uh, this kind of scrutiny to him. And I think here, you know, Megan Wolf has put herself in a position where she is, uh, is dealing with uh, Zuckerberg-funded um, organizations. And we want her to head a nonpartisan Wisconsin Election Commission. And I think 
I, I just can't support that anymore. And so that's not a question. That's a statement. And uh, if you'd like to comment on it, uh, feel free. I don't I don't. I did make that one of the recommendations that she be terminated for cause. So, and let me just ask a question here then. So is Megan Wolf, and I apologize, <laughs> her father, is, is, she a, is she a state officer appointed by the commission? She, she's not just a state employee. She is a state officer, correct? She is considered the chief election officer. And, and if, if you're not, I'm, if I'm that, not I mean, let's counsel, am I, am I, that is correct. Okay. So she is considered a state officer. She's appointed by the commission and she's the chief chief election officer for the state of Wisconsin. Okay. Just wanted to make sure that she's not just a state employee. She's something at a, a completely different level. Representative Murphy, go ahead. Uh, no, I was, uh, I'm finished with my questions for now. Okay. Um, um. Representative Emerson, do you have another one or? Not at this point. Representative Roser. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Um, I have a question about um, about the the bottom of the ticket. We've done a whole lot of talking about the top of the ticket yes. and the Biden votes versus the Trump votes and things like that. Yes. Do you think that um, CTCL influenced any of the bottom? Because there were places where Republican candidates got more votes than the top of the ticket. So can you explain to me how you would explain that Biden got more votes, but then in some places, Republicans that were at the, you know, beneath that actually got a lot more votes. So can you kind of explain that to what, me of how you think that happened? What I believe you're describing, Representative, are the electoral anomalies that are reported in Ozaukee County and parts of Milwaukee County. And in Green Bay with Mike Gallagher. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. I um, should have said that in the mic. I, I tried, I spent a lot of time, especially early on, um, looking into that. And I, have, I didn't find anything that allowed me to draw any conclusions that would allow me to stand up here and, and declare it within the context of a of a report to the legislature. I, I know that they were anonymous, uh, anonymous, I'm sorry, they were strange. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I really, I don't have that granular. Here's one of the great needs that this whole enterprise has pointed out to me. There's nobody in Wisconsin that I know of I mean, even if, you, even if you go to a lawyer and you want to pay $500 an hour, there's nobody who's on top of all this. There's nobody who is on top of Wisconsin election law. I believe there are court cases in Wisconsin referring to it as a Byzantine, unnecessarily complicated uh, statutory scheme which requires a law degree to understand and even then your chances aren't high. So I, you're really putting your finger on a great frustration of mine, along with the lack of cooperation from so-called government servants. Because my concern, sir, is that if we, de if we don't legitimize 
the win at the top of the ticket, does that put all of us in jeopardy that we won? I, I, I don't know if that's a legitimate question or not, but, but then do I have to worry that maybe I didn't win because there was some funky stuff going on or shenanigans? I, those anomaly, anomalies worry me a little bit because if that influence was at the top of the ticket, was there any influence on down the ticket that we should be concerned about? And I think... I don't know enough to comment on the past, but on the future, I really do believe that recommendations two and three, those recommendations, citizen, we got smart people. One thing about this process, it's brought home to me a number of things that have been very refreshing. We, we talk a lot about the fact that a lot of people are indifferent to politics and, and unknowing about the legislative process. I have had the opportunity to to, to talk with people on all ends of the political spectrum. And I have been continuously impressed by the depth of concern of so many and so many intelligent questions and so many, not one person, not one person, my friends on this side of the dais, has come to me and said, gee, we really need a finding in favor of one candidate or but what I have found, I have found thousands of concerned citizens. And I say, let's give them the tools. This is not something that should be for the people behind the curtain. It should all be out there. And if we allow the people, if we give the people the tools to look into it for themselves, which I believe that public availability <coughs> at no cost no additional costs, they've already paid for it, of accurate voter rolls in combination so that anyone who's interested doesn't have to come up. If you wanted both of those sets of data, it would be over $20,000. Let's just set it out there. Let's take away this. But, but are some powerful groups, some who are listening and tweeting right now, are some of those groups making money and or keeping power by keeping this information from the citizens of this state? I think there's, that's a very strong inference to draw. Why wouldn't you want the people to know who's voting? I mean, years ago, someone, someone who I met in Milwaukee told me that he remembers growing up in the city of Milwaukee and they would put on billboards in the different neighborhoods who the registered voters are. And that was a service to the voters in the days pre-internet and when making a telephone call was still a little bit of a big deal. That they could just look at the billboard in their neighborhood and they could see if their name was on it. And then obviously by definition, they'd be able to see everybody else's name who's el registered, eligible to vote. I don't want to get into registered, activated, deact, <laughs> eligible to vote. Give it to them. Give it to the people. That's my plea. Thank you, Madam Chairman. No further questions? Wow, no further questions. All right. Murphy, did you have one more? Yeah, I do have one more. Okay. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Justice Gableman, about uh, the J. Stone um, situation. Um, so I'm not aware of him. I don't know anything about him. Is there is there anything I should know about him or 
Oh. Please meet Jay Stone, hey, Representative Jay. Murphy, Mr. Jay Stone. Okay. Uh, I, I just thought it was rather interesting that that you filed a claim uh, with with WAC about CTCL, and they said you didn't cite a statute. I, I thought that was rather interesting. It made me think about... Um, um, no. Okay. Um, so, Representative Murphy, I think we could go back to the LAB report. Okay. Um, under the reporting function, that WEC should not be the only one reporting on themselves. And I think Mr. Stone's complaint being dismissed by Megan Wolf is a clear example of why there should not be the complaint department part of the right. Wisconsin yeah. Election Commission. Sure. And that complaints in themselves should be made more readily available as somebody who spent hours and hours and hours going through complaints from individuals and that had been made available right after the election. The ability to format and get through them is is ridiculous. I'm just trying to understand the thinking that goes into a citizen bringing a complaint to an agency that has attorneys that, that should be helping them to figure that out right. and then coming back to the to the citizen and saying, well, you, you, know, you, you didn't cite the statute. I mean, my goodness, how many times do uh, do people in, in the in the course of their life uh, have interactions with the police or whatever? And uh, if you were asked every time, you know, well, gee, sir, what what statute are you right. <laughs> are you citing? No. That's ridiculous. Never in all my years. I mean, yeah. it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about public service and helping the citizens, not in somehow trying to get in their way and find a reason not to serve them. So, I think, Representative Murphy, if, if this is the way the complaint process is handled through the Wisconsin Election Commission, I think we've missed a lot of complaints in the, in the ongoing years. Ned, Representative Murphy, what you are calling to mind is sort of the front end of the operation. Mr. Stone sent his complaint in in late August of 2020, well before the November 3rd, 2020 election. And so he was, I believe, improperly denied even a, a hearing. They, they didn't say, or even consideration. They, oh sure, she considered it enough to dismiss it, but nobody said, hey, wait a minute. Purportedly private money going for the administration of public elections? And we sit here two blocks from the Capitol, and we're the Wisconsin Elections Commission, and we represent ourselves as being the boss of all Wisconsin elections. That's what they do when it's convenient. And when it's not convenient, they push responsibility off on the 1,852 municipal clerks. That's the front end of the operation, Representative Murphy. The back end of the operation is David Becker and the Center for Election Innovation and Research coming in with Mark Zuckerberg's $70 million at the tail end of the operation and creating this entity for the Election Official Legal Defense Fund, funded, say it with me, everyone, by Mark Zuckerberg. And so here we have the cleanup operation. We've got Ms. Wolf on the front end pushing away any even consideration of this bizarre scheme that nobody to the best of my knowledge, asked for, except Mark Zuckerberg and David Pluff and their employees. And then at the end, we have the state's largest newspaper 
declaring David Becker to be a nonpartisan, unbiased. Well, he's the one who took the $70 million of Zuckerberg money. Why wouldn't an honest reporter, it seems to me, or an honest teller, it doesn't have to be that guy, a person honestly describing the situation could very well say, guy who got $70 million from Mark Zuckerberg comes to town to criticize guy who's investigating Mark Zuckerberg's activities. Any further questions? Oh, you knew I had to have at least one, one <laughs> final question. Chapters 9 and 10, um, wards under guardianship orders and non-citizens who voted in the election. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an important Megan issue. Wolf made the point that, to me, that she is unable to remove either of these groups, categories of individuals, because by statute, I have not commended, or excuse me, the legislature has not told her to do so. Do you believe under the current HAVA laws that citizens under guardianship and citizens who are non, and people who are non-citizens in the state need to have a legislative fix to make sure that they are removed from the from our voter databases? Here's what I believe. I didn't even get to the point of removing anybody. What I Oh said, right, we're not removed, we're just No 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 chair madam chair. This is a more fundamental question and it goes right to why I believe WEC ought to be dismantled. As I said at the very beginning, and so it's interesting that we end where I kind of began. At best WEC is hopelessly derelict of duty. That's your best case scenario here. I'm not talking to you, Madam Chair. I'm talking to the people of this state through you. And they ought to know it. What, I would, what I'm talking about is just have a means to let the clerks in the municipalities, the 1,852, let the clerks who are, I've been in courthouses my entire career, over 30 years, I know and love the clerks. Let the clerks do their job. WEC isn't even providing the data. So you're saying that WEC has not has been misleading clerks as to both guardianship orders and non-citizens by not letting them know that they should be removed? I am saying unequivocally that WEC has been derelict in its duty of informing the lawful administrators of Wisconsin's elections and providing them the support that they purport to give by giving them the relevant information that they are in a unique position and I believe have a unique responsibility. They could easily gather it from the Department of Transportation. They could easily gather it from the other entities that have the information and give it to the clerks so that the clerks who can make their lawfully required decision. And, and one thing, this calls up again, Representative Rozier. The clerks don't know. The, the clerks are wonderful people, and they are dedicated public servants. But oftentimes, their jobs are far from full-time. They are volunteers doing a community service. And oftentimes, they are in remote parts of the state where their ability to access legal counsel, where their ability to access voting. Remember, this is a system that WEC presides over 
and, and says, ooh, it's the best in the world. And we have a court decision calling it an, a Byzantine process, unnecessarily complicated, that the average layman cannot understand. How do we ask the 1,000? I'm just saying, hey, WEC, give the clerks the tools necessary to do their jobs. Fair enough. Any further questions? Thank you very much. We appreciate Justice, Justice Gableman, and I'm sure that we, um, we get some weekend reading and uh, some time as we go through this report. Thank we you, thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks. Uh, we do. Uh, with that, we're going to make a little shift. We're going to have um, Attorney Eric Cardell come in. And I don't know if you have any other team members on board or... We're going to do a little, you know what, let's, we're going to do a little uh, shift on the video equipment as well. We're going to do five minutes and I'm really going to say five minutes uh, for a uh, break here as they're making the shift. Okay, guys, I wonder, uh, man, this has been fireworks. Hurry up, hurry up, mama bear. Go on, Senator, I mean, uh, Representative Branch, and she needs to use the bathroom. <laughs> wowzers, guys, wowzers. Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this one again, guys. <laughs> we'll do this one again. Ready? Ready? Are you ready? Let me know when you're ready. For our favorite Michael Gableman photo. <laughs> He's like, damn, damn this woman up here. That's my favorite Michael Gableman photo, guys. <laughs> anytime, anytime it's like uh, something's going on, right? Anytime something stupid, he's just like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> okay, I know, guys, I know I'm playing around too much. Um, man, that was, uh, that's, this has been quite a hearing, guys. This has been quite a hearing. I thought it was going to be over once Gableman was over, but I guess it's not over. It's not over till it's over. It's not over until Representative Branchin sings. Okay, no, that was mean. Uh, it's not over till that representative with the Irish coffee and the loud mouth and the eyes. Uh, man, that woman was making so many personal attacks. It's ridiculous. Anyways, guys, this has been a fireworks right here, okay? I'm surprised that uh, Gableman is saying the things that he's saying. Like, the things that he's saying, people would be like, you can't prove that, that's conspiracy theory, blah, 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 blah. But man, yeah. <laughs> Tam Growl's like, we know you love Gableman. Yeah, we've, we've, we've talked about Gableman for probably a year now here, guys. Like, we've been all over this before it was a hot topic. Pill by the Rabbit, Tam Growl, Sazzy Q, Derailing, Ankavanka. Uh, let me see who else is in there. I know Sonya JHC was hanging out. Sean Joe, all of you guys, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon as we go through this hearing. Aurelius Locke, I see you still there. FMJ7262 by 39. I know you're in lurk mode, but thanks for hanging out with us tonight, uh, this afternoon, guys. I know there's a whole lot more of you guys in there who I'm, uh, my coffee brain is just kind of like, you know, Pilled by the rabbit. Did I say pilled by the rabbit? Okay. 
<laughs> it's not over till the fat lady pees. Yeah, we've been covering election integrity issues, especially with Wisconsin. You go back to the C report back like as far back as like April or May of last year or before that. We've been on since what? February 2021. So we probably start covering Wisconsin probably long about, I don't know, March or April. We've been writing this, you know, this entire time. So you talk about, you talk about, oh, uh, this has been a long, this has been a long game. These are, they are making more strides now than they were able to. And we were covering it back in uh, February, March of 2021. We still had Rhino Robin Voss, okay, who was still like, oh, we're going to have an audit. He did three or four sham audits before people started to wise up to him that he wasn't really doing anything. And then you start hearing more and more and more about there. They can't find election fraud. Okay, we played a video of a hidden camera on Ron Johnson of Wisconsin telling a constituent, oh, there was no fraud in Wisconsin. Okay, I mean, I like Ron Johnson. The man has been fighting for our rights with this whole COVID debacle. But yet somehow he's just like, the numbers just don't prove it. We just can't prove it in Wisconsin. There was no fraud. We played the video. It was a, it was, it was a sneak attack video. It was, it was like, it was like some SJW pulled a, um, pulled a Project Veritas on Ron Johnson. So the man had no reason to lie. Okay. It was hidden camera. And he said, there was no fraud in Wisconsin. We can't prove it. It can't be proven. Okay. And he didn't say it like he was frustrated to be to be quite honest with you guys he said it like he really doesn't believe there was fraud in Wisconsin okay so this is the route they've had to take okay they have taken the route of the law and this is why I say CTCL the Center for Tech and Civic Life which is the organization that Zuckerberg funneled all of his money into okay they messed up in Wisconsin okay because they had their little National Vote at Home Institute which is run by Michael Spitzer Rubenstein you've heard his name here a few times in this entire uh, debacle let me make sure we're not missing out on the <laughs> let me make sure we're not missing out on the pee break being over while I get a little, while I get a little, uh, a little passionate here, guys, about this issue. Ah, they're back. Jesus Christ. Okay. Branchin, that was quick. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a minute, guys. Okay. Let's get back to this. <laughs> um, Pat is right here. My name is, oh, there it is. There yep, we go. Yep. Okay. My, my name is, uh, Eric Cardall. I'm an attorney in Wisconsin and in Minnesota. And I'm here to make a presentation. Uh, I'm a Thomas More Society Special Counsel, and I'm gonna talk about 10 subject areas of election official legal violations of the 2020 election. And I tend this, intend this mostly just to be informative and educative in a different way. Um, the client-attorney relationship here, I wanna be transparent. Uh, Thomas More Society attorneys have represented Wisconsin Voter Alliance and Wisconsin election integrity issues. Wisconsin Voter Alliance has over 1,200 members. They're statewide. I'm very impressed. They come from a very diverse group of people, people from Milwaukee, Madison, uh, Green Bay, Kenosha, Racine, wonderful people. The president is Wisconsin Voter Alliance, Ron Hoyer. He's been past Kiwani uh, board chair. He's a retired uh, travel industry executive, a Vietnam War veteran. Ron's here if you want to talk to him. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm an attorney who has made a career suing the government, so I, I admit to that kind of narrow-mindedness. I, I, I'm narrow-minded in the sense I focused on one thing in my career, and that is to sue uh, governments on behalf of ordinary people and businesses. And that's a very narrow thing, but it, it's quite useful 
when, when public officials violate the law because there should be an attorney to represent ordinary people when they, they suffer or are injured by officials violating the law. With respect to this situation, uh, you know, it's useful to stop and think about you know, Mr. Gableman's report and think about what's been going on with respect to government investigations. So in the, in the first instance, you had the Legislative Audit Bureau report, October 2021. I've read that report. It's a very significant report. And it details a lot of Wisconsin Election Commission insufficiencies, uh, neglect to details. Uh, it's something that uh, everyone should be aware of when approaching election official illegalities in Wisconsin. The Racine County Sheriff Report, I've also read that. That was the report that said that Wisconsin Election Commission members, five of the six, violated state law by not sending the special voting deputies, one Democrat, one Republican, to the nursing homes during the absentee ballot voting period. The Waukesha County Circuit Court opinion, January 22, held that WEC violated, uh, violated the law by allowing these uh, drop boxes, by putting out the memo regarding these absentee ballot drop boxes. I, I didn't mention here, but I should, that, that there was also the indefinitely confined decision uh, that came out uh, during the election or after the election. That's an, also another WEC memo that gave uh, advice really in favor of illegalities. And here we heard the Office of Special Counsel, the March 2022 report, and uh, here we have you know, WEC and municipal clerk violations of law. Thomas More Society you know, began in 2020 uh, with investigations. It was kind of interesting. In this process, I came to understand better how difficult it is for citizens to investigate their government. And Wisconsin really needs to work on investigating government. And it even appears that it's difficult for the government to investigate the government. So, so imagine uh, Mr. Gableman is doing an investigation of the government. I've been trying to do an investigation of the government and how difficult it is to investigate the government in Wisconsin. So here we narrow-minded. We're just focusing on election integrity. But my experience has been, and I've been uh, doing election law lawsuits since the 1990s, uh, two U.S. Supreme Court victories, one in 2002, one in 2018, over, over uh, approximately 300 appeals, appellate court decisions and arguments. So I have a lot of experience in, in suing the government. My experience here is so interesting because... Basically, from, you know, say 1998 to 2020, I probably did 50 election law-related lawsuits. And, and I always thought, like, oh, you know, geez, you know, these election officials, they're violating the law here, and they're violating the law there, and the state statute violates the law here. But it wasn't until Thomas Morse Society hired me to go to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, with the Amistad Project uh, at post-election 2020 that I began to see, well, wait a minute. The same violations that are occurring in Minnesota, are occurring in Wisconsin, are occurring in Michigan, are occurring in Pennsylvania, are occurring in Arizona, uh, Georgia, and are occurring in Arizona. Now, why would it be that state election officials in different states would be making the same violations of election law? And, and then that opened my mind to the fact that CEIR, you know, Eric, uh, CTCL, National Voter Home Institute, that they're influencing election officials to violate the law the same way. And, and, and that, that after uh, the post-election litigation was done, I looked at Wisconsin's laws, and I saw that there was a path. 
There's a path, you know, of course, politically and legislatively, but there's also a path with respect to litigation. So this requires a little bit of detail, but it's relevant to some of the questions that were asked here. So Wisconsin's post-election certification process and post-election contest process are focused on a candidate filing a petition for a recount of the ballots. Other states allow election contests based on election official illegalities or irregularities casting doubt on a close election result. Georgia and Arizona are examples. So in Wisconsin, the choice, rightly or wrongly, has been made that these certifications occur basically irregardless of election official illegalities that don't affect you know, recounting the ballots. So, that, that, so you can change that law if you want. I'm not here to recommend law changes. I'm just saying that's the system we have. So then you go to the next question. Well, how do you deal with election official illegalities in Wisconsin? And this is where the system is pretty fantastic. And so the system here is that the state of Wisconsin has waived sovereign immunity so a voter can sue their election official for violating election law. So that is just an extraordinary thing. Imagine your predecessor legislature saying, we could waive sovereign immunity so everyone could sue the government for every violation of the law, but rather they were narrow-minded, like I've, I've talked about. And they said, elections are so important that we're going to waive sovereign immunity in this area so any voter, like Mr. Stone, any voter can sue uh, an election official for violating election law. So when we go through these 10 subject areas, I just want to point out that each of these subject areas, there's a process to file an administrative complaint with WEC subject to circuit court, court of appeal, and Supreme Court review. So it's a beautiful thing because the legislature is not alone. You are not alone in correcting these election official illegalities because you create a procedure where these lawsuits can be brought and the courts can help you. The courts can, can correct the Wisconsin Election Commission, correct the, uh, the election official illegalities. Does it affect the past election? No, this is about future elections. But that's important because we need to restore confidence in the election system. And so let's talk about the first topic. Wisconsin election officials' use of absentee ballot drop boxes violated Wisconsin law. Now, it's very important we start to remember the cities of Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha, and Center for Tech, use Center for Tech and Civic Life paid absentee ballot drop boxes. So $216,000 of CTCL, private money, out-of-state money, you know, from California, wherever, through Cook County, came into these five cities to purchase those absentee ballot drop boxes. Now, the Waukesha County Circuit Court has held them to be legally unauthorized. I get criticized for that word, people like illegal. But really, when you read the decision, I think it's a better phrase, legally unauthorized. Review is pending in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the April primary will be without drop boxes. The Wisconsin Election Commission has adopted no rule in favor of absentee ballot drop boxes, and so there we are. So that's important to understand that these drop boxes were all over Wisconsin, and the citizens, the voters, can sue their cities in WAC and get an administrative correction so absentee drop boxes aren't used. And that's the method that you've created. So you're doing what you're doing in the legislature, and the Thomas More Society and I will be representing these citizens across the state of Wisconsin, pointing out that WAC and your municipal clerks violated the law with absentee ballot drop boxes. Now, maybe the Supreme Court comes out a different way. We'll see. 
Center for Tech and Civic Life's Safe Voting Plan for Wisconsin Five Cities is election bribery. There you have the statute, Wisconsin Statute Section 12.11 on election bribery. There are three elements, anything of value received by a person to endure electors to go to the polls. So anything of value, well, $8.8 million. Person includes body politic, which means they include cities and city officials aiding and abetting. Induce elector to go to the polls. Well, that was the whole idea of the Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan, was to target neighborhoods in those five cities and get them to go to the polls. Now, there are two exceptions in Wisconsin election bribery statute that are relevant because it shows just how expansive election bribery law is in Wisconsin. One is election bribery in Wisconsin, if you're an employee, you give election day off to, your employee, to an employee unless you let all the employees have the day off. Two, is election bribery in Wisconsin if you pay for someone else to go to the polls. If you're using your own car, it's okay. If you, you pay for an Uber or something, that's election bribery. Three, unauthorized influence of special interest groups and in election administration. So I like the Wisconsin law that requires Wisconsin Election Commission to do an administrative manual for Wisconsin municipal clerks. But the direction of the legislature is, to the Wisconsin Election Commission, include everything possible about elections in that 250-page manual. So we have a 250-page manual it doesn't mention any of the things with respect to special interest groups engaging in election administration. So if, if we're going to have a 250-page book saying how elections work in Wisconsin, you either include Zuckerberg, CIR, CTCL, and all this stuff, and tell, tell Wisconsin, this is how we run the elections in Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Kenosha, Racine, or you stop all that activity, and then you keep, can you keep the book you have? You know, it's, it's one or the other. And, and so I, I think that that's a really important issue is that WAC has a municipal clerk book that they weren't following when they're giving advice to these entities with respect to using special interest groups. Then the WISVOTE security policies make special interest groups receiving government information unauthorized users making unauthorized uses. So the WISVOTE security has four levels. Uh, clerk's the top level. And there, there are all these emails where there's this sharing of data between the uh, election officials in these five cities with the nonprofit groups. They're using for different uh, get-out-to-vote apps and so forth. And so those are not authorized by WEC security policies. WEC is supposed, has a policy that we, they don't share that information except with the public, and it's for charge. In this case, the nonprofits weren't being charged a fee for receiving the data they did. CTCL, as part of the $8.8 million Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan, pushed its partners into Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha. I think Justice Gableman covered that pretty well. CTL's plan was to have, other, uh, have cities participate in private get-out-the-vote plan to facilitate increased in-person and absentee voting. I think Mr. Gableman covered that well. Four. Racine County Sheriff's Report, WEC violated special voting deputies law. I've already kind of covered that. Uh, the Racine County District Attorney concludes she did not have jurisdiction. The claims have been referred. We'll see if anyone follows up on that. But it's important that with respect to voter fraud, that once the special voting deputies didn't go out, administrators in these nursing homes were assisting people in voting, the absentee, they're handling the absentee ballot. And, and that's, that's a problem too. In other words... This law should not have been suspended by WEC 
because it prevented other types of voter fraud, election fraud to occur. Five, the nursing homes. This is a big one. Uh, Wisconsin uh, Voter Alliance and Ron Hoyer and I were working on this, uh, and we found that there were 93 facilities that nursing homes reviewed were in Brown, Dane, Milwaukee, were seen in Kenosha County. The 93 facilities we looked at had uh, 3,230 registered voters for the 2020 election. Of those uh, 3,230, 3,189 voted. So across those facilities, 99%, but virtually, you know, you know, almost all of them at 100% voting rate. Now, that's registered voters, but nothing's 100%. And, you know, I heard some uh, concern about, well, you know, maybe those uh, videotapes were out of date and so forth, but why are these nursing homes voting 100%? Why do we have a 100% registered resident voting rate? And my concern is you put, you know, 30, if CTCL puts $36 a voter into Green Bay, well, of course, for $36 a voter, you're going to have 100% registered resident voting rates in the nursing homes. And so it's just like, I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, this, this is the fifth area of serial violation of the law by Wisconsin election officials. Six, wards under guardianship, a problem in need of correction. Uh, uh, Madam Chairman, you brought up the point with Megan Wolf. Um, wards under guardianship, I mean, this was just, just you know, investigative work, uh, shoe leather or whatever, knocking on circuit court doors and finding out that the guardianship orders are confidential and then finding out from WEC that they don't get copies of the guardianship orders, and then looking in the WISVO data, and they don't have a, they have a data field, but they don't, they don't check off wards under guardianship. The law says that a ward under guardianship is ineligible to vote unless the court order specifically says the right to vote is retained. Now, the more current form in the Wisconsin court system has a checkoff box for uh, uh, you know, losing your right to vote. I think that's the better way. And my recommendation, if you go down this route legislatively, is, is to require the courts to use the uh, court, the uh, competency assessment tool for voting, the one that I administered in the nursing home, and then that would be good because you have an individualized test. And, and then the, there's an actual adjudication regarding that one person, whether they have capacity to vote or not. And, and that has nothing to do with other people. Now, on, with respect to the law on guardianship, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that with respect to this other ineligibility, not understanding how the voting system works, I don't know how you do that without having adjudication before court, uh, I'd have to look at it more closely. I'm not criticizing that aspect of the law, but something that should be looked at because we want to be fair to our elders. Seven, non-citizens, a problem in need of correction. Wisconsin law makes non-citizens ineligible in the election process. The Help America Vote Act requires Wisconsin to maintain WISPO to ensure ineligibility data is up to date. Neither WAC nor the clerks obtain the non-citizens information from the Department of Transportation. The Department of Transportation has non-citizen information because non-citizens on green cards and work permits can obtain driver's license there. We requested that information to the Department of Transportation. They said no. WAC has acknowledged that they don't collect it either. And there's no place in the WISVOTE data fields available to the public that say non-citizen. So you have non-citizens that the government knows are non-citizens in, in, the, in the database, and we complain to WAC, and they say whatever they said. Eight, equal protection clause violations in Wisconsin, the five cities, the Obama case. So in, in, this is an important case to understand how the equal protection clause works. Because normally you think of it as being deprived the right to vote. But in Obama for, for America v. Husted, 
a Sixth Circuit case out of Ohio, the Sixth Circuit held that it was unconstitutional for the state of Ohio to allow only domestic military voters to cast ballots in person over the weekend before Election Day. The Sixth Circuit noted that although military voters can face unexpected emergencies to prevent them from voting in person at Election Day, other voters may face similar contingencies. At any time, personal contingencies like medical emergencies or sudden business trips could arise, and police officers, firefighters, and other first responders could be suddenly called to serve at a moment's notice. There's no reason to provide these voters with fewer opportunities to vote than military voters. The court concluded that the Equal Protection Clause therefore mm. prohibited the state from making special accommodations only for military voters. The court added that it would be worrisome if states were permitted to pick and choose among groups of similarly situated voters to dole out special voting privileges. So similarly, CTCL's Wisconsin Safe Voting Plan with the five cities is unconstitutionally worrisome because cities were permitted to pick and choose among groups of similarly situated voters to dole out special voting privileges. And that includes the voter outreach, the absentee ballot drop boxes, the vans, the, one, the vans that were purchased with the CTCL money actually said they're to pick up the elderly, the disabled, and people of color. Well, if that isn't choosing people over other people, what would be? And for the voters in these cities who did not receive the benefits of the CTCL funded increased opportunities to vote, there is no reason to provide these voters with fewer opportunities to vote than CTCL's chosen voters. So we have real equal protection problems. Uh, remember, usually equal protection clause is thought of as, I lost an opportunity. Here, the Obama court said, uh, Obama case, they said, if you give other people additional opportunities, then that can be a violation of the equal protection clause. So nine, the legislative auto bureau report, WISVOTE database problems, rulemaking problems, administrative complaint problems. You know, and, and you know, it gets to the point where uh, University of Chicago law professor Carl Llewellyn said, ideal without techniques is a mess. Technique without ideals is a menace. As a, a lawyer who sued the government over and over and over again, you, 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 you hesitate in making that call. Is the government a mess? Or is it a menace? Are these government officials, are they just, is this just neglect? Or is, is this like something else? And when you have serial violations of law in nine different subject areas, then you're like, no, it's a menace. It's not even the neglect, it's the, the negligence, it's the persistence in the negligence. It's intentional. They did this. And so how do you fix it? Well, legislature fixes it. We file all these lawsuits in these areas. Ten. We were talking about um, certification, and I wanted to bring up the Federal Electoral Count Act problems. Congress right now is debating what to do with the Federal Electoral Count Act. So when your votes came from uh, Wisconsin, what happened was Ann Jacobs certified, Governor Evers certified, and then it went to you know, the U.S. Capitol. And then the U.S. Capitol, uh, the Congress gathered and they were looking at the Wisconsin results. And there's no way the Constitution says Congress should be reviewing what happened in Wisconsin. Congress is supposed to count the votes. What happens in Wisconsin you know, is determined who the electors are, Governor Evers signed off, the electors went, their votes were counted. That, that is a, even Congress, many newspapers now, including the Wall Street Journal and the Dallas Morning News have editorialized the Federal Electoral Count Act needs to be fixed. And I've had some correspondence with the Legislative Council's office uh, on this point. You know, maybe we have some differences of opinion. 
But the point is, we need to discuss this, and this state legislature should not be left out of that discussion. It shouldn't just be Congress deciding what your rights are. We need to, you need to you know, do what you can to go to Congress and get something better than currently exists, because under the current law in a close election, you know, the, the House and the Senate could throw your votes out, a rogue Congress. And the purpose of the, the constitutional provisions in Article 2 was that Congress wouldn't choose the president unless there's a tie. And then it goes to the House, of course, and it's selected that way. So what do we do with serial violators of the law when they're in these important positions in election administration? And I think what, um, what, what, we, what we do as a legislature has a bipartisan discussion. We just went through a very difficult, close election. There are election official illegalities in Arizona or Georgia would have, would have cast doubt in the election and would have caused a, a chance for a, a, an election contest in that way. We don't have that law in Wisconsin. So bipartisan legislation after a close election, and then these, these, these lawsuits will be important because the legislature is going to need help in enforcing its laws. You see, when, when you, your laws are violated, this is actually in the Seventh Circuit opinion, the Trump case, that our, when your laws are violated by election officials at a substantial departure, then it's a violation of Article 2 and Article 1, too. Article 1 and Article 2 say the state legislature is in charge of election laws. If your election officials are violating the election laws, then, then the, federal const- the legislative prerogatives under the federal constitution are being violated. So I, in, in summary, uh, you know, I, I view myself as, as a resource. Uh, I want to work with all the legislators on any questions that they have. Um, with respect to sort of partisanship questions, uh, I, I'll say right now that if anyone contacts me and Republicans are cheating, uh, Wisconsin Voters Alliance and I are interested in that too. If Republicans cheat, Democrats cheat, whatever. I've represented uh, all sorts of political parties from the far right, Constitution Party and Libertarian Party, to the far left, the Socialist Worker Party. And you know why they like me? Because I represent them. And I represent the people that I can when I'm suing the government. I'll take questions. Thank you. That was to the point. I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't have a, um, a, a written piece to go with it. I'm assuming you can make that available to our office. Yeah, and I, I, didn't mean to, uh, I didn't mean to uh, sneak attack you on that. I, I, it was very short, so I'll send it to you. Yeah, it's 12 no, minutes. and they turned it off, and so I think we were all like um, asking questions from that. Representative, any questions? Uh, representative. Thank you. And my question is probably really for Ledge Council, but the issue of disqualification of electors was brought up here as well as in the previous um, presentation. I'm wondering if you could just walk us through, it's a fairly brief statute, 6.03, around disqualification electors so we understand the actual process by which somebody might have the right to vote removed due to incompetence. Please. Sure. Uh, so under that particular statute, it states that um, a person who's incapable of understanding the objective of an election or who is under guardianship uh, is ineligible to vote. And then it further says that you can't be denied the, the right to vote uh, because you're alleged to be incapable of understanding unless you've been adjudicated incompetent in the state. Uh, and in turn, that procedure is Basically, a court has to find under clear and convincing evidence that the person is incompetent to exercise certain rights, and one of the rights listed is the right to register or the right to vote in an election. May I comment? 
Yeah, can, can I say thank you for the clear explanation? Yeah, yeah, thank you for the question, Representative. Thank you for the response. Yeah, it's a tough spot. I've been litigating a guardianship law in this context for quite some time, so I have some experience. Yeah, I, I, you're right, that, that, but if they're not capable of voting, then the person who votes the person, that, that's illegal. That's like elder abuse. We don't want to see that either. So I, I mentioned that it was complicated. I, I don't know if that's the best system. Maybe there's a better system. I don't even know if the, the special voting deputies are the best system. You know, I don't know. Uh, it, it's really a difficult question. I, I was surprised, though, when I went in the guardianship. People who are under guardianship do not vote. We're voting because that seems like don't get the circuit court orders. And I talked to clerks in several counties, and they were going to get the circuit court orders and just put it in. So if you can get compliance that way, then, then maybe, you know. We need it in the law. Someone needs to know who's responsible for doing it. But the, the county clerks, they can just go over to the clerk of court, get the guardianship orders, see, see which ones are adjudicated, and then put them in. And then ostensibly that would stop them from registering. If they're registered, it would stop them from voting. And well, there will be mistakes. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate it's a tough balance between due process and competency at times, and I think it's an important balance. Um, just I thought it was important to have that clarification in part because I don't think the public always knows if there's somebody in your family who you may not believe is in a position to vote, that they still have the right to vote unless they've been adjudicated and competent to do so. And I think that's just a really important distinction. Yeah, I also want to just note that um, this is actually a, a bipartisan area. And, and, like, it's just, like, let's just, like, cool it a little bit and let's just go forward and, and try to address these different issues and, and I think uh, the further we get away from the 2020 election, the better the environment. And, and there was a, a parallel, uh, we don't necessarily like parallels across state lines, but Minnesota took a heavy hit with the Coleman-Franken race, because initially, uh, I think it was Coleman was ahead, and then in the recount, Franken took the lead. And there was a lot of bipartisan legislative activity after that. And I'm, I'm not saying that you know, those laws are perfect, but you know, everything can be improved. So Wisconsin laws can be improved, and there should be a bipartisan environment. And I, I hope that everyone... Uh, engages. I know you're at the end of the session, so. So, so just um, so we understand, in, the, in other states, they do the competency questions, right, for it for um, to determine if you are under award or not. Am I wrong about that? Well, no. Uh, going back to Representative Suzbeck's question, the Legislative Council's response, uh, I, I at least in the the, the case I looked at. They, they were using something similar to the competency assessment test. That was an out-of-gamey county. And, and it actually, on the state court form, indicates whether they have the right to vote. So that indicates to me that Wisconsin circuit courts are doing it right, the probate courts. And so then the point is then if they're doing it right, then those decisions need to be communicated to the clerks and, and WAC so they're in the system. Now, with respect to outside um, that court process, as, as legislative counsel mentioned, you know, the judgment has been made that absent that determination, that person has the right to vote. Right. That Then the question is, you know, just an undue influence question. It's actually related, you know, whenever you have, like, lack of testimony capacity in a state contest, there's, there's, then there's also a danger of undue influence. So usually they kind of come together. And so uh, anyone who's done a lot of work with vulnerable adults, sometimes you can have someone perfectly capable of defending themselves but if there's one ne'er-to-do relative who's overpowering them, well, then that's a vulnerable alt case. 
because you can't have that kind of imbalance of power. And so in a nursing home, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Depends on the nursing home. Sometimes they'll, they'll be more respectful. Other times, I guess they wouldn't be. I don't know. Any further questions? Well, I guess they wore us out. Um, that being said, um, I appreciate not only the work that you've done um, explaining a lot of the WEC complaints and then going through the WEC process. Uh, your work has really been very valuable to the state and asking a lot of the questions that I think before 2020, we wouldn't have been able to have a discussion because we weren't aware of some of the concerns. So I appreciate you coming in and, and making that available to us. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice day. So with that, no further questions. We're going to uh, call this recess. Thank you. I mean, adjourned. Forgive me. <laughs> An independent, nonpartisan, well, nonprofit media network. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> There you have it. That was quite the hearing. What a uh, what a road less traveled that we have taken, but a road that I think will travel down probably a whole lot more in the upcoming weeks, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I think, uh, aside from Mr. Gableman, <laughs> we're gonna keep his face on the screen there before as we as we close out the session. Uh, uh, Ankavanka asks, so what does it mean now? Well, what's the process? Well, there, I, at least I don't, I, I don't know if I could follow this down to the letter of their personal process in Wisconsin, but I would think that um, the representatives of this committee and those present have a lot of, uh, a lot of um, information on their hands now. Uh, they're going to have a lot to consider. Ladies and gentlemen, they're going to have a lot to consider. As, as uh, Representative Branchen said, they're going to have a lot of weekend reading. Uh, and that committee is going to have to push it forward at this point. Uh, we already had Representative Rantham uh, calling for uh, decertification or recalling of the electors. We've had nothing but all of this data coming forward now. As, um, as, as uh, uh, Justice Gableman had noted, this is the beginning of the investigation. Now, he, he gave props to Robin Voss, the rhino, okay, the speaker rhino. I mean, the guy who is a Reince Priebus uh, um, um, rhino, okay, he's, uh, what, what is the name of the blue eyes guy again? Uh, Reigns Pribis and, um, uh, oh, he used to be, he used to be the speaker. I always forget his name, you know, with the blue eyes that, that Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan, he's a Paul Ryan rhino. Okay. And, um, and here's the other thing about speaker Voss guys that we have to keep in mind. Speaker Voss is responsible. He's responsible not just for the drop boxes in Wisconsin, but he is also responsible for getting those drop boxes situated nationwide because he sits on a committee, on a board, a national, national board. Uh, the name eludes me, but we talked about it on the C report that was responsible for making recommendations for drop boxes in the entire country. And Robin Voss is still currently trying to get the uh, the um, uh, the ruling that a Wisconsin judge made that drop boxes are illegal. Robin Voss 
is still actively, he is still actively trying to get that ruling overturned by sneaking in legislation that would allow drop boxes. And, uh, and so that is some of the drama that's still going on there. So even though, even though my, uh, Michael Gableman, Mr. Justice Gableman here, uh, kind of threw a bone to Robin Voss. Oh, well, he's doing a good job. He's still trying. Okay. Well, you know, we understand that Robin Voss hired you, Mr. Gableman, but Robin Voss is a rhino to the T, he, to the core. He's done nothing but subverted and he's done nothing but tried to push back and slow down any types of audits of Wisconsin's election in 2020 from the jump. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I got, you got to hand it to Gableman. He's, he's trying to, to, to throw a lifeline to Robin Voss. But at this point, Robin Voss, who's already, they're already calling for his censor. They're already calling for his removal. We already have a county Republican parties in the state of Wisconsin that are actively trying to get Robin Voss removed as Speaker of the House because this man is a total rhino, okay? So uh, Robin Voss deserves the rhino song, guys. You want to hear the rhino song? I know you guys want to hear the rhino song. When we're talking about Wisconsin Speaker of the House, Robin Voss, he deserves a, a rhino alert, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry for the hiccup, but you guys get my point, right? So, <laughs> so, and that's just the way it is, guys. And so the long process, but as Gableman said, this is really the beginning of the investigation because he's been, he was able to lay out all of these points, these points with the uh, work that he's been doing since it's been like six months, he said, right? It's been somewhere around there. You guys remember when President Trump gave his speech in Alabama? Well, that's when that's when Robin Voss rode on the plane with Trump to Alabama and they had a heart to heart. But the thing about it is Robin Voss is still working against election integrity in Wisconsin, even after even after having a heart to heart with President Trump. So uh, they, it really needs to be made clear here, guys, that Robin Voss does need to go. He is he is he is a poisonous root in the legislative body. And as one of the top head officials in that state, he needs to go, okay? And everyone recognizes it except for the rhinos who are in the state house right now. And let it be known and make no mistake, Wisconsin is stock full of rhinos, just like the state of Texas, guys, just like the state of Texas, full of rhinos. They need to go. We need to vote them out. We need to primary them. That's what I was doing this morning before this, uh, before this entire, uh, this entire, uh, fire fireworks show went off today, guys. And, uh, I mean, that's just the long and the short of it. So I think what they're going to do now is they're probably going to have to consider all of this, uh, information that was put out into the hearing. And then it's going to be up to the good people of Wisconsin to put the fire underneath their butts, guys. It's going to be up to them to make the phone calls, to let them know they know what's going on, to let them know that they're watching them and they will be held accountable and they will be primaried. And when, Sazi Q said April, I think it was April, right? Where uh, where you guys are going to have your elections there in Wisconsin. So let, let it be known, guys. Call them up, write them letters, go pay them a visit, you know, uh, do everything you got to do short of uh, of uh, walking up with tiki torches because you know if you walk up with tiki torches they're gonna call you racist right
right? Just like the Nazis in Ukraine had tiki torches. Yeah, and they did. We we showed you guys the photos of them, uh, what uh, the last two Sea uh, Report shows, guys. So anyways, we've been covering this, guys, over here at the Sea Report. And uh, I'm just glad to see that the ball is still moving as slow as it has been. As slow as it has been, the wheels of justice are still turning. So we just need to hope, pray, and be active enough to let them know that we're paying attention, that this will push even further. Because they already have the reports from Representative Rantham. Poor dear Representative Branchin has basically been fighting this case alone. Uh, up until now, guys, she's basically been doing this alone and she has gotten it this far. Okay, She's the chairwoman of elections and uh, the elections committee there in Wisconsin. So she's been going at this pretty much by herself until now. She's been getting uh, she's been getting some support. Uh, but she and Representative Rantham have been the most vocal in the Wisconsin Legislative House, and uh, they deserve the uh, props, the credit, and the gratitude uh, that uh, that they've held the line down this far. But again, the gratitude also goes to the constituents of Wisconsin who are reaching out and letting it be known where they stand on this issue, because Branchin and Rantham could not do this without the people of Wisconsin. None of our elected officials, none of them could do this without out the voice of the people, giving them that fuel to push forward and giving them that confidence that whenever they take this into a he hearing or whenever they open up an investigation, that they have the support of the people. Because without you guys, without us, they can't do this. It's just like in Arizona. The Senate of Arizona could not do what they did with the audit. They could not do what they did with trying to hold these people accountable without the constituents, without the people being behind them and vocal about what they want in their state. So good job to you guys in Wisconsin. Good job to you guys in Arizona who have been active and vocal because these guys, they got nothing without you. They have nothing without you. With that said, ladies and gentlemen, I think we are going to sign off now. Uh, it's been a wonderful afternoon hanging out with you guys over there, whether you're with us over at Twitch, Clout Hub, Rumble, and of course, the good folks, families, and friends over at the Foxhole.app and Pill.net. This would not have been as enjoyable for me without you guys uh, hanging out uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> watching this fireworks show go off. What fun this has been. All right, so coming up for this evening, guys, I don't know if I will be on for the C-Report tonight. We have a precinct meeting this evening at 7.30 p.m., which is the same time that the C-Report usually airs. So uh, we'll play that by ear. I don't know how uh, I don't know how long the precinct meeting is going to be. I do know that uh, I do know that uh, it's not too far from my home, but you know. Uh, I take the pata mobile. That's uh, that's Hispanic for the foot paddle. <laughs> down that way to get there so we'll see how it goes guys but uh otherwise maybe we'll do a watch party or maybe we'll do a quick uh you know headlines breakdown kind of thing uh we'll see what we do for sure but uh but it has been an absolute pleasure guys thanks for uh, thanks for hanging out and being here with us today uh in spirit or in body yeah, tonight, yeah, Shanjo, we'll see about tonight. We'll see about tonight. Um, it just depends on how this precinct meeting goes, because I think I want to be in attendance for that for sure. Uh, for all of you guys who gave us, uh, who tossed a cookie or uh, uh, tossed a can this way here over at uh, Foxhole, thank you so much. Rolling on. What's up, buddy? Tossing that cookie in. Good to see you, and thanks for being here, sir. Um, we'll leave it there. Let me go ahead and release the scratching.
Okay, Scratchin's been released. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that does it for now. And uh, well, with that said, guys, as always, be safe, be blessed. God bless America. And we will see you guys soon, I'm sure. Take care for now, y'all. Bye. and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated. From 99 cents per month to 4.99 per month to 9.99 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for the sea report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm slash the sea report and thanks y'all